kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Auntie Nanny. Um, tonight we will begin with the CASA update portion of the program. Um, <clears throat> are you here, Alex? I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Good evening, and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 324-2017. Um, I could ask you what's new and exciting this week, but maybe we should start off uh with something new called the Where in the World is Alex Clark portion of the update. <laughs> Where are you, Alex? Um, I'm in Atlanta. Uh, okay. I'm down here for the vape showcase mm-hmm. and uh, pretty excited for a couple of things. First of all, the vape showcase people always put on a pretty high quality event. Awesome. Um, so it's, it's just, it's always nice to attend something as well put together as that. And um, we are kind of, I guess this is part of rolling out our actual real life letter writing campaign, um, sending letters to HHS secretary, Tom price. Right. Um, so I'm going to be spending my weekend walking around the convention floor, getting people to, uh, you know, sign letters, write some personal messages and, uh, and then we're going to mail them off to secretary price. Awesome. Sounds like a good weekend. Yeah, and I, I would add, I, I didn't get a chance to, to talk about it before we go, we went on, but um, okay. so uh, I am in a hotel and I'm on their their crappy free internet. I didn't get oh. the, I didn't upgrade to the, the real internet before right. we came on. So um, on, on our little thing, if you guys are going to share uh, links and stuff, I would recommend waiting until we're done because I think I might, if my voice cuts out when when things get shared i don't know okay just a technical note (laughs) okay all right anyway um so uh on to the on to business um okay uh so yeah down here in atlanta um and uh i know that uh the georgia smoke free association will also have a table um Uh and i think someone uh amy mccann from safada is down here as well okay Uh, and I feel like maybe someone else. I think it's just the three of three groups. Um, okay. But 
each one of us are going to be, um, you know, trying to get people to sign letters. Uh, GSFA is, is obviously running the um, uh, gathering signatures electronically uh, okay. for this huge uh, industry letter that is going to be delivered to Secretary Price. Um, right. You know, the effort there is to get, you know, there's tens, there's, well, there's definitely more than 10,000 vapor businesses throughout the country. Awesome. And, um, you know, the effort is to get as many thousands of those businesses to sign on to this letter and, and to further illustrate, um, you know, just the, the damage that the deeming regulations would, will do. Okay. And the ask, um, the ask in that letter and the ask in our letter is urging Secretary Price to delay any any further implementation of the deeming regulations. Um, right. And I'm not sure what exactly he could do retroactively. I mean, you know, lots of people have already registered their products. They've already spent tons of money registering yes. their products. Right. Um, so I don't know if that registration process would then still continue, but the other parts of this regulation, the other deadlines that are, that are coming up, um, the effort is to get those, you know, delayed. The ask is for, you know, uh, at least two more years. Some people are, have asked for four, mm. um, but you know, overall, the idea is to get get a delay so that we can continue working to fix these regulations. Um, you know, in a way to keep these products on the market, and, mm -hmm. you know, from the consumer perspective, preserve yeah. our access to the diverse vapor market. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I want to. I want to generate. I'm hopeful to generate lots of letters. That's 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 what I'm hopeful about. I was awesome. able to get. Uh, I think I got nearly a hundred signatures on a thank you letter, or on thank you letters to mm -hmm. uh, Senator Johnson at the last vape showcase I was at in, in awesome. Dallas. So, um, yeah, looking forward to doing that this weekend. Um, and uh, for anybody who who doesn't know didn't get the alert or didn't see the post um we have this exact campaign uh on our website um okay. and uh it's very simple as a shop owner you can download uh that it's all they're all pdfs so there's a there's two different pdf flyers mm -hmm. that you can download and print out and, and put them on your counter they look nice i i hope uh, and I, I designed them myself. <laughs> um, okay. if, if they don't look nice, it's not, if it's not something you don't want to put in your store, you know, it's your call. It's your store. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there's a flyer there if you want to promote it. And then you can download the letter, print it out, and make it available to your customers. And, um, you know, the, the, buy some stamps, buy a big envelope, whatever, collect it, send it in to Secretary Price. Uh, and you know, make sure you snap a picture too of all the letters that you people are writing. Um, right. That 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 sends a message as well. So that's available on our website in a post. Um, all that stuff's there for download. And I'm hoping to kind of set this up and, and show people, you know, this is what it can look like. It's very simple. It doesn't take up a lot of counter space, and it's really easy to get people, you know, to come in and get engaged. Sure. Yeah. Um. So that that's like the good fun news. Right. <laughs> Guess we should move on to what happened in state legislatures this week. Um, okay. So uh, we put out a call to action for uh, Montana SB 354. Mm -hmm. I believe this is the 74% wholesale tax. 
Yes. Um, I need to update this. I just just found out that there is a committee hearing. Um, okay. uh, this is a 74% wholesale tax on vapor and smokeless tobacco. Um, the, the vapor is a brand new, obviously, 74% wholesale tax. Right. And the smokeless tobacco is, I've, I haven't seen this a lot of other places, but I've seen it before. Um, the current tax on smokeless is 50% of wholesale. Yeah. Um, or wait, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's 50% of wholesale. This bill would raise that to 74% of wholesale or uh, the tax on a pack of cigarettes, whichever one is greater. So it is one way or another, it's it's a, it's a tax hike. Yes. Um, and so we are opposed to both of those proposals all in sure. one bill. Uh, and I checked on the site before we came on and um, that is scheduled for a hearing on the 27th, which is that Monday or Tuesday? Um, that would be Monday. Yeah. So scheduled for a hearing on Monday, and we need to update our engagement for that so that people can um, get some emails out and make some phone calls. Um, the other thing that happened, I'll, I'll splice in some some good or fun news. Um, <laughs> I, we put out a call to action for Rhode Island yes. last, last week. I ended this. I don't have it at my fingertips, but... Uh, there was a bill in Rhode Island, and the way that the, the tax was written, um, the, the word that they used in the definition uh, was tobacco substitutes. Right. And it created a, bit, a little bit of confusion, but um, we wanted to err on the side of caution, as did mm -hmm. um, the, the, the people, the, the, the businesses in Rhode Island also sure. um, wanted to err on the side of caution that that may be broadly interpreted to include vapor products. Um, so uh, there were a bunch of people, it sounds like, that showed up at the hearing. And uh, I, I believe there was a bunch of people that sent emails as well. Awesome. And um, they got to the hearing. And I, I don't know if it was the bill sponsor or somebody on the committee spoke up and said, just wanted to clarify that tobacco substitutes does not include e-cigarettes, and we did we had not intended at all to tax those products. So, right. um, I'll take that as a win. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's uh, it's, yeah. it's certainly certainly nice to hear a lawmaker say we didn't have any intention of taxing vapor products. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a quote for the ages somewhere. <laughs> <clears throat> so. Um, good news out of Rhode Island. Um, Nevada is the other tax bill that we're watching. Um, this, so this was heard in committee on Tuesday. Uh, this okay. is a five, five cent per milliliter tax. Mm -hmm. and, um, just to clarify right off the bat, we are not supportive of any extra taxes on vapor products. The only reason that we have urged support in places like Kansas and Pennsylvania for five cent per milliliter taxes is because they are a they are effectively a, a pretty big reduction in the taxes that are on the books. So right. we are not supportive of extra taxes. We are supportive mm -hmm. of tax reductions. So there is currently no extra tax on vapor products in Nevada. 
and this is an extra tax it's five cents per milliliter mm -hmm. um it went to a committee hearing and uh, i know stefan didak was there uh, people from the nevada vapor association were there mm -hmm. um, and and nevada does this thing where they have uh you know the hearing is in carson city but right. um you know las vegas is like what an eight hour drive away yeah. so, so they sort of simulcast it they do it kind of like alaska mm -hmm. um sure. which it's actually kind of remarkable to me so you know you can do that in nevada right but you know california <laughs> that has you know this is much taller than right. nevada you know no consideration given to northern california or extreme southern california people <laughs> might not be able to make it into Sacramento, um, but uh, hey, that's California. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Nevada has this thing where they sort of toss to people who are sitting in a, a sort of off-site, you know, committee hearing room in, right. uh, in Las Vegas, and uh, it was just—I sorry—I was just sort of geeking out a little bit about the mechanics of the, the committee hearing. Well, um, I mean, it seems like you should, with the technology available, be able to do tele testimony. do you know what i mean using yeah. skype or similar technology i mean that seems like a good way to get all your constituents heard yeah and that's been you know alaska obviously has a lot of remote areas you know there are mm -hmm. certain places in alaska that you can't reach right. uh, unless you fly in for certain mm -hmm. parts of the year so um, right. they have the legislative information offices that people can go to in their towns and, and uh, give testimony when, when hearings happen so that's good. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, and it, it, it does. makes makes the uh, makes the legislative process accessible to a lot more people. Exactly. Um, but uh, so yeah, the the results of that committee. I actually watched the committee hearing, and okay. um, I, I don't recall there being a vote. Um, I don't exactly know what the result of the hearing was. Um, I just know that the hearing happened. There will mm -hmm. possibly be another hearing. Maybe it goes to another committee. Um, I, I'm just sort of unclear at this point, but if you live in Nevada, um, please take advantage of our engagement and, and send lawmakers a message urging them to oppose this tax. Right. <sighs> <laughs> Plenty of stuff going on. Hard to keep track of it all, huh? It's, it, it, yeah, it's, you know, it's springtime. Everything's going to a committee hearing. It's yes. been kind of a whirlwind. Um, I, I, I'm yeah i'm pretty sure it's friday so it's friday i'm here yes <laughs> it's been a little nutty uh, uh, yeah i saw your your photographs today yeah yeah it was fun i always enjoy flying in planes that are sort of put together um yeah uh, interestingly <laughs> put, put together interestingly <laughs> as opposed to appropriately yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see what else happened last week. Um, I know Kansas is happening. Right. Um, why don't I have? I think there's an update pending about Kansas, okay. uh, and I'm on such slow internet that uh, I'm likely not mm -hmm. to get this in a timely fashion. Okay. Um, the uh, Kansas Vapor Association is a good place to check for that. I do know there's an update. 
this has gone to the House, and um, yeah, I think this bill has quite a bit of support. So um, that's good news for Kansas, from what I understand. Am I still with you? You're still here. I was just looking to see if I could grab the update for you. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, and some stuff loads pretty quickly. The other stuff does. Oh, New York, New York, New York, New York. Okay. So this is this is the important one here. They're all they're all important, but New York is is a bit more in depth. Um, so in case you haven't seen our engagement for this, for I guess a couple of months now, it's been pretty widely known that the governor was going to some sort of tax bill was going to be heavily promoted in New York this year. And when we started this conversation, there were two options on the table. It was like a 75% wholesale tax or a 10 cent per milliliter tax. And the 10 cent per milliliter tax is what ended up getting proposed in Governor Cuomo's budget. That quickly morphed into a 40%, or I'm sorry, a 40 cent per milliliter tax, which would make it, I believe, um, with the exception of like Chicago, but as far as states go, that 40 cent per milliliter would be the highest or one of the highest taxes in the country. And this section of the bill also would include vaping in the in the state's indoor smoke-free air law um, which is a weird you know thing to do in a budget bill but apparently right. that's kind of how things work in new york okay so um, there's also uh some very it, it's kind of hard to sort through this uh, you know i obviously i read a lot of legislation but this new york is written in a way that gets Kind of confusing and um it's just very time consuming to kind of pick all of this apart uh yeah. there are um what appears to be very stiff penalties for people transporting e-liquid through new york in new york and not having the proper paperwork and there are right. sort of, there are limits i think the consumer the average average joe consumer limit like forty-four thousand milliliters wow um, but if you're carrying that or more and you don't have receipts or invoices showing, you know, something, if it looks like you're basically smuggling e-liquid, <laughs> um, there are pretty steep penalties. Um, I believe there's, there's jail time or something and there's thousands of dollars in fines. Wow. Um, and so these, they've based these thresholds on, it like they sort of it seems like they tried to identify an equivalency with with cigarettes right and so that's what these thresholds are based on okay and so as a as a, a manufacturer retailer distributor whatever if you're bringing if you're moving product around the state and you don't have the proper paperwork to show that you've paid the tax or whatever then you can get busted and fined and possibly face jail time right um, and this is, <laughs> it's laughable because it, it's just, I mean, it, it is, it is a clear demonstration of just how little New York state has learned about their tobacco tax policy. 
Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm yeah. just going to, I mean, this is a not even really a, an official looking back of the envelope estimate, but right. I assume that New York probably has the largest black, largest cigarette black market in the country. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah they have the highest cigarette tax. And they have over half the cigarettes sold in the state of New York are sold on the black market. And so what's their solution to controlling the way that people use and sell electronic cigarettes? Well, let's just tax the hell out of it. And if we implement these steep fines, like I'm sure they have for cigarette trafficking, um, people just won't do it. So that works. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very much, um, the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same yeah. thing over and over, over again, and over expecting again. different results. Sure. Um, so apparently, you know, New York State is a big fan of the black market, which typically, I think, I think you would say. <laughs> I mean, if you if you wanted to point fingers at why uh, any state officials might like to see a black market or would do things that would encourage a black market, right. typically you point to connections within organized crime. Those are the people that benefit the most from a black market. And New York, as we all know, uh, does have a long and sorted history with organized crime. Um, So I'm not making any specific accusations. I just say that's something to consider. (laughs) It's it's interesting, isn't it? You know, the the thing that causes the most crime. Let's run with this again. Hmm. Why would you do that? Yeah. yeah, I'm never going to, and I, I certainly want to encourage anybody to put that into talking points that you might present to the legislature. That is, <laughs> <laughs> when you say things like that in an official capacity, not on, you know, your your weekly organizational podcast, um, that is typically met with very, very strong reaction. Um, but uh, it, it is it is certainly something to think about, you know, more or less, at least the one talking point that, that is worthwhile is that, Black markets only benefit organized crime. So, yes. um, you know, that's if that's something that you want in your state, then by all means. But, you know, I would yeah. kind of think that you wouldn't want that in your state. So, yeah. Um, what do you think? It, let's keep it reasonable, kids. Um, and so the only, from what I understand, the only, th- the only part of the bill that all three groups, the governor, the, the assembly, and the senate, the only thing that they can agree on is the indoor vaping ban. Right. The tax has changed and, and whatever. Uh, and, and I'm sure even the licensing requirements are there are subject to some debate. But uh-huh. the only thing that everybody agrees on is the vaping ban. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. And so the effort yeah. there has been uh, for the past couple of days to call the governor. Um, right. You know, his phone number is up on the CASA call to action, the people in New York and New York State Vapor Association, um, yes. they they have posted that up uh, and are promoting <laughs> promoting the governor's phone number. So um, <laughs> if, if you live in New York, if you do business in New York, give the governor of New York a phone call. Um, and I'll, I'll give that number to you now. And uh, he'll love you for it. <laughs> yep. It's uh, area, area code 518. 4748390 Governor Cuomo please remove the vapor language from the state's budget that's the ask 
vapor needs okay. to be out of it completely. Okay. No point. There's no point in mincing words with, you know, trying to get specific sections, this and that. It's just right. remove vapor from the budget altogether. Sure. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Ah. And, and, you know, you're, you elect these people, they should expect to hear from you. Yeah. And I can tell you, um, it having flown out of LaGuardia this morning, <laughs> <laughs> um, if if they're spending their money on upgrading that airport so that more cars can go there, they're wasting your money. <laughs> I think that is the most ridiculous thing in the world. I, LaGuardia is the only kind of regional airport with the exception of Teterboro. And Teterboro mm -hmm. is like a private airport, okay? okay. No, commercial stuff doesn't fly in and out of Teterboro. Right. LaGuardia is the only airport that you can't get to by rail. JFK has an air train and a, you know, almost a direct link to the A or the E, the subway lines. And mm -hmm. you know, Amtrak and New Jersey Transit both stop at New. So LaGuardia is it's like the biggest pain in the ass airport to get to. <laughs> and, and it's been that way. It's just, it's always been kind of a nightmare. Right. When they started upgrading LaGuardia, like the first thing they did was build a bigger parking so yeah <laughs> well the traffic in and around LaGuardia is horrible obviously oh, right. we need to obviously we need to encourage people to drive well I'm saying I mean I don't understand why you wouldn't send more regional public transport to the area that would make I, more I, sense. I mean there's buses but right. you know that's kind of a pain in the ass right. <laughs> so yeah well, but anyway I mean, yeah, that's my 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 ranting about the metropolitan <laughs> transportation. This I, you know, that's completely off topic. Sorry to get out into the, world. but to, you know, all that to say, you know, they're, they're, that's how they're spending your money. Um, just one example. So, <laughs> yeah. it, it sure to be nice to have a new airport at some point, but <laughs> seem to be going about it in a very weird and disruptive way. Well, yeah. So. Okay. Uh, the other thing that I haven't really dug into, and I, I, uh, I did get a message last week, and I okay. didn't want to mention it, uh, Alaska is looking at uh, an indoor, uh, I, I can't remember if Alaska, I don't, Alaska doesn't have an indoor smoking ban, right. what I understand. I remember yeah. that in the, in the years past, in the past couple of years, they tried to pass, it was like AB40 and SB1, those were right. the, the bills I remember. I'm mm -hmm. not sure if I got the house designations correct, but um, so, uh, and those bills were um, implementing a, a vaping ban as well. So this year they have SB 63. Um, and and I, I actually watched a bit of last week's committee yeah. hearing right. and uh, there was actually no mention of vaping. They were talking about um, kind of the design, you know, the definition and designations of what, you know, what's a club, right. and uh, you know, is it freestanding? Is it connected to things, and so on and so forth. And they didn't talk about vaping at all. Um, again, you know, this type of proposal has failed the past few years. I don't okay. know exactly, you know, what kind of legs this has. Uh -huh. uh, I don't have any intel, you know, 
in, in the way of, you know, who's supporting what. But right. um, just to let people know, uh, I am look, we're looking into that and trying to figure out what's going on. Um, okay. But uh, there is an indoor vaping ban bill in Alaska. Oh, and yeah, because it never gets cold in Alaska. It's always so temperate. It's a yeah, perfect why, place to go outside and vape. Why? Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to go outside in Alaska in January? I, you know, yeah. If you're, if, if you're an American, that's just what you do. <laughs> um, so, uh, and the other thing uh, before I get into looking forward, um, uh, Texas. Texas has been looking at, there, there were sort of multiple tobacco 21 bills in Texas. And this is just, this is Texas. What yes. happens is that, you know, several lawmakers introduced essentially the same bill and then mm -hmm. you kind of got to figure out and see which one's going to move. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm looking into that this weekend. I know uh -huh. that uh, the, the trade associations have been uh, trying to organize their members. Um, right. And I believe there is a committee hearing on uh -huh. Tuesday for okay. a tobacco 21 bill. So um, be on the lookout for that. I don't know if I'm going to get to that tonight or tomorrow, but um, okay. uh, obviously we're opposed to tobacco 21 and we'll probably be putting something out soon. Uh, and it may, it, that actually may be a more targeted type of engagement. So uh, okay. if you're in Texas, be aware that Tobacco 21 is on the move, uh, okay. but also understand that we may not be contacting you directly because we may kind of try to keep this a bit more targeted. Okay. And that brings me to the looking forward. Um, okay. I don't want to get too deep into strategy and revealing strategy, but I, I should mention that um, you know, our uh, support of HR 1136 continues, uh, and we, we, we have been working uh, closely and cooperatively with VTA and Safana mm -hmm. and the AVA, mm -hmm. and um, as, as always, um, ATR, Americans for Tax Reform, has been very helpful. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, if you haven't received a, a direct kind of email asking you to participate in urging your um, member of Congress to support, um, don't worry, <laughs> it's coming. Right. But we have been kind of this, you know, this has been a bit selective at the okay. moment. Um, there are, uh, you know, specific people that I think need to be Kind of quietly nudged before right. we get into the broad push for support so if if things seem a little bit quiet now it's because you know there's a there's a more there's a very intentional effort going on and um and that's one of the reasons why you know working closely and cooperatively with the other trade associations is is has been very helpful uh -huh. um, you know we all work together and we all share information and um, and, and try to try to be as uh, effective as we can, and not, not overly duplicating each other's efforts. Right. And so, yeah. yeah. So I, I just I want to put that out there because you know last year there was a lot of talk about nobody is you know nobody's on the same page and everybody's talking about different stuff and right. you know it, I think there were some misperceptions actually about what was going on because you know when we when we all get together and talk we're not. You know, we're not doing it on YouTube or Skype or, you know, there's not a live broadcast of what's going on right. that should be obvious. 
Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, but you know, the people don't people don't see that, and they don't understand that there is a lot of work that happens behind the scenes that never gets broadcast, and, and right. you know, we're we're not really ever going to give a lot of details publicly. So mm-hmm. um, it's nothing nefarious. It's just, you know, you don't, you don't show your cards to the other team. Not <laughs> if just, you can help it. <laughs> I just, I just mixed game metaphors there. Um, I, I got what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> you never show the other poker players what's in your hand. Yeah. Until you get to the end zone. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, and then you, you, you pull back your stick and you aim to hit the puck in there so you can get a goal. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so anyway, uh, but yeah, I just, I, I wanted to emphasize that. Yeah. yeah let sure. everybody know that, that we are all working together. Um, awesome. And so uh, that also being the case, um, you know, one of the things that we, we hope to see going forward is, um, you know, working through the trade associations to, get our you know letter writing campaigns sort of distributed among their members and and have that made available to to their customers um so that they can participate and um you know right now we we have this you know actually write a letter campaign um and you know putting that as the first option before we go for the broader you know send an email right because you know we really really want to encourage people to you know to send that handwritten heartfelt letter yeah. to their lawmakers and, and that um, actually the this particular engagement is to secretary price, mm-hmm. but you know, eventually another campaign is coming where we're going to be encouraging people to handwrite letters, you know, in support of 1136. Yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, the Cole Bishop amendment is still a thing by the way. Right. Um, awesome. So uh, it's uh that's in the uh, appropriations bill isn't it yep it's in the ag appropriations bill and um you know the effort there is to make sure that that you know much like at the end of last year the effort is to make sure that that stays in the budget sure Um, so uh hopefully (laughs) (laughs) once i you know once the donald is done like gutting obamacare and whatever else they're gonna just strip out of america um hopefully we'll see the, the budget start to move um obviously this past week and this weekend i'm sure is dominated with talk about uh, the health care um yeah. but uh hopefully that conversation will change within the next month to the budget and yeah. um, and we'll see some movement there so yeah. um uh, but yeah any engagements involving 1136 also goes to support keeping the cole bishop amendment in ag appropriations which is awesome and then i'll just and and since since we're there um i'll just end on the the best note of all is that we are rapidly gathering co-sponsors on hr 1136 i think we're up to i think we're up to 31 now Um, I, i put out an update uh yesterday or the day before and um that was 28 I think, or 27. Wow. Uh, and so I, I'll need to update for Monday. I'm, yeah, I whenever mean, I get a chance this weekend. Um, we're, it seems like the, the co-sponsors are, are signing on a lot quicker than they did before. Yeah, well, you know, we had, we had 72 
right? 72 or 77 co-sponsors for HR 2058. And it's a very similar effort, you know, co-sponsors for that was an indication of support for the Cole Bishop Amendment. Right. It's it's the same thing here. Support Mm -hmm. for HR 1136 translates to support Cole Bishop. Right. You know, the, the first group of people that you know, the asks went out to were HR 2058 co-sponsors. So it should actually be relatively easy to get those 70 some uh, 2058 co-sponsors to sign on to 1136. And uh, and we're already getting a lot of that. And we're getting some new people too, which is great. That's awesome. So, you know, it's a good thing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Alex, should I let you go rest? Oh, there's there's no rest for me. <laughs> I gotta run to FedEx Kinkos and pick up a bunch of copies of stuff and okay. some well, somewhere hunt down some dinner. Oh well, I should let you get to that. Thank you for coming on and talking to us, Alex, and thank you for everything you do for us. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, have a good weekend and I'll talk to you guys next week. Okay. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Alex. Thanks. Don't stop recording, Barry. Um, you can get CASA updates at CASA.org. You can get CASA updates at SoundCloud. Uh, you can get the CASA updates by looking up the CASA.org feed on iTunes. So you can always get our podcast and you'll always know what we're doing. I can stop recording. <laughs> okay. Um Let's start with the show. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Auntie Nanny. Uh, with me this evening is the very best producer that money can't buy, which is good because I'm still not paying him. Good evening, Barry. How are you? I'm very good. I had a good week. Uh, you did. Okay. I have to start out by saying um, thoughts are with the families of the people in London, killed and injured. A violent criminal did a violent criminal act. That's all on that. But yes, the good part of the week was Global Forum for Nicotine Dialogues in Glasgow. Yay! I got to meet Dr. Farsalinos. Well, did you get I shook his hand and said uh, and, and thanked him uh, and the like, but didn't talk to him because, yeah, he was about to do a presentation. <laughs> so was it as awesome as I imagined? Yes, it was um, yes. the presentations, um, which there's a Periscope video available at the moment, but it was also recorded in 4K. Okay. Uh, there are two people filming it, so okay. the official the official film will show up at some point. Um, awesome. But the Periscope, while the image quality isn't great, you still you can still hear the presentations. Um, awesome. And yeah, uh, I'd say somewhere around a quarter of the audience were vapors, um, and stop smoking service people, and right. academics, and it was, uh-huh. it was um, a very thoughtful uh, event. <laughs> awesome. That's a good thing. Well, That's let's face it, there are no ants there, so. <laughs> So some people actually got to have a dialogue that meant something. 
Yes. Um, but nice. the presenters, obviously, Dr. Fersalinos, everybody knows. Um, right. Joanna Miller, mm -hmm. um, who is was a student of Peter Hayek. Um, right. She gave a good presentation on the latest data. Uh -huh. There was the lead for tobacco for NHS Glasgow was one of the okay. speakers. Um, okay. He basically runs the Stop Smoking services. Um, his, you know, and what it, um, Andy Morrison of the NNA was the opening speaker, who obviously, oh. being a vapour, was very passionate. Uh -huh. um, and there was an HR um, person who, who didn't really give a presentation, but was there to give the human resources perspective on vaping. Uh, uh -huh. And it was chaired by Dr. Human, who people might have come across in other events. Um, right. So, yeah, it, it was rather good. Um, it comes down to stop smoking services want to be, they, as, as it's referred to, e-cig friendly. But the higher up people who are politically or whatever motivated are very resistant. The frontline staff think it's a fantastic thing for the right. most part. It's just getting them, you know, spreading the message slowly out and getting everyone on side. So, sure. yeah, it was a good meeting, a, a good talk. <laughs> yeah, can, can, you, can you send some of your more reasonable people over here? <laughs> oh God, we, we still need them. I mean, and yeah, until, no, I... until we've got it completely mainstream and Covered. stop getting all the media attacking, vaping all the damn time, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the fight won't end. I mean, well, yeah. Unfortunately, mainstream media does uh, does do the bleeding, leading stuff. I, I mentioned um, that because that's partly what Doctor Fersalinos was talking about. You know the right. the misuse and misrepresentation of science. You know. And boy, have we got it in spades here. Um, and also with us this evening is Mr. Jeremy Metlock. How are you this evening, Jeremy? Doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Um, so yeah, so there's Periscope videos out there to view, which I will be doing later. And, uh, we had an interesting week in the news, of course, the, the attacks in the United Kingdom, which not surprising. Um, and, uh, oh yeah, by the way, uh, Seems like a billionaire banker has died. Another one? No, yes. just, no just the first one. <laughs> you know, Monty Burns himself. Oh. I know. I think that video that I made where I toasted to his death <laughs> was the one that got me reported. Although, I don't care if people think it's hateful or it's cruel or whatever, it's Still, it doesn't violate the community standards, so I can kiss my ass. Well, I mean, you know, it's not like he is known for being a nice man. I mean, I, I guess he is. Um, oh, he's a philanthropist, though. Yeah, okay, you know. He's a philan something. 
yeah, his whole family is full on something. Just look up the history of, of Jekyll Island, Georgia. And actually just, you know, do yourself a favor. Read the creature from Jekyll Island and, you know, when you're done with that, we can talk about dead billionaire bankers and tell me how you really feel. Because, uh, I'm sorry, I don't care what you give back to the community. I don't care if you build hospitals or whatever. You're still doing some evil shit. No one gets that much money by just being a great guy. Yeah, just because just your guilt finally got the better of you doesn't make you a nice person. No, I mean, and all this shit they're doing is for tax writing purposes. Come on. For the most part, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he who shall not be named died. Uh, kind of hoping George Soros is next, but that's maybe just me. Well, I wouldn't write him off yet just because he died, you know. <laughs> that's true, you know. I remember the movie The Island. Yeah. Well, and also all the stem cell research and all that kind of stuff that's been going on, you know. There was a movie... And I forget who was in it. Um, Clive Owens, I think, uh, played just this gunman who went around eating carrots all the time. I don't know if anybody else has seen it. But uh, the plot was that this guy who was a mayor, or he was going to be vice president of the United States, he was really sick. He went around and got all these women uh, impregnated so that when they had a baby, he could take their stem cells and do something with it. It was some pretty screwed up shit. I know um, the film you mean. You know which one I'm talking about where he's like a gunman and he just, you know, that was a pretty ridiculous film. But still, seems kind of likely with all the money these people have. See, now you've got me looking and trying to find the (laughs) name of the film. Jan, did you see the story about, um, it's a Dr. Phil episode that just aired about this woman who claims that she was sex trafficked from the time that she was born that she was basically purchased by some rich elite pedophile ring and her parents were paid to give birth to her and she was sold immediately into sex slavery and she remembers being abused before she could even talk um it was a very very long episode and while i have no doubt that she probably was trafficked Mm -hmm. she probably was abused Mm -hmm. Um, there are certain inconsistencies in her story. Like they asked her, well, how old are you? And she said, I don't know. You know, there was, there was many, many years that, you know, we were kept in the dark for a lot of times. We were moved at night, drugged in the trunks of cars, in, uh, transport cases on private jets, um, flown all over the world, major sporting events. So there were times when, you know, I didn't know how many days passed. I wasn't aware of seasons and things. And he said, well, what's your most vivid memory? And she said, well, when I was seven, he put a gun to my head and told me that if I wanted to end it, I could just pull the trigger. And when I did, nothing happened because the gun wasn't loaded. And then he punished me. And my thought was, I don't know how old you were. Exactly. How did you know you were seven? How did you get in touch with Dr. Phil if you were kept in captivity? And how did you escape? Right. How can you read and write? How were you educated? How are you computer literate? There were just a lot of things that were just inconsistent in her story. But, you know, right. I mean, I'm not going to blame her as a victim. You know, she's obviously been very, very mistreated and abused. But. Right. I don't. Okay. <laughs> 
since we're talking about this kind of twisted shit, um, Mary, what's yes. happened with the sex abuse allegations over there against the BBC and against people in Parliament? What happened to them? It, it, it all went away. Yeah, isn't it funny that? And the amount of allegations against the politicians and people on the BBC is staggering. Well, I mean, the BBC one is still kind of trundling along, but very quietly. Whereas, yeah, the right. one for Parliament's just been dropped, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You know, um, so tell me about the IRA member who died this week. Who oh, was Martin McGuinness. Martin yeah. McGuinness. Tell me about him. Controversial figure, unsurprisingly. Uh, <laughs> he, he was a senior leader in the IRA yeah. uh, during their terror campaign. So, yes, he ordered deaths, uh, basically terrorist attacks where people died, yes. including the the bomb that almost killed Margaret Thatcher. Uh, well, in he the might hotel have been at the remembered conference. as a hero for that there. I guess, um, you know, and then he... Uh, he started uh, eschewing violence and wanted peace talks and he's one of the people who led the peace talks and brought about peace in Northern Ireland um, Still a very controversial figure because of yes. his past yeah. um, So interesting things happened in, in the UK this week um, I oh, saw and a I, lot I, of I mean, I will say, despite what the American media are reporting, the the attack in London, uh, as far as we know so far, it was one guy, he hired a car and used the car as a weapon. Yes. He was known to the police because he's been in jail for attacking people with <laughs> knives before. Right. And this was before he became radicalised and changed his name right. and became a... Uh, uh, quotes terrorist so yeah he he was he was an asshole before he did this um <laughs> yeah and yeah security worked he he got to the outside fence of the parliament buildings at which yep. point a policeman got in his way and got killed for it it's a shame that the policeman died um but you know uh parliament seems to be <laughs> Parliament seems to be a place that most terrorists would like to attack, you would assume, but terrorism can be done by one person, it can be done by an army of people, it can be something that's taught to an entire country by yeah. people who come in and, you know, well, obviously, to fight their enemy. I mean, there's a massive investigation going on. There's been, I think, eight arrests now. People yeah. who knew this guy yeah. have already been picked up and were being questioned by the police. Well, I mean, as it should be. Yeah. You should be questioned for the things. You I mean, the, okay. the the night it happened, the next morning, right. seven people were arrested. Police raided properties and arrested people. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're very efficient over here. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you've definitely got, uh, definitely got good intel there, which is a good thing. Um, so, is anybody in love with anything in the document? Well, I like the Supreme Court ruling, but I don't think you should lead with it. 
Uh, very. Is there anything you like from this? Just, just be all rural and start with the tractors. It's nice and easy okay. for everybody. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is pretty interesting. Why American farmers are hacking their tractors with Ukrainian firmware? A simple question. To avoid the draconian locks that John Deere puts on the tractors they buy, farmers throughout America's heartland have started hacking their equipment with firmware that's cracked in Eastern Europe and traded on invite-only paid online forums. Tractor hacking is growing increasingly popular because John Deere and other manufacturers have made it impossible to perform unauthorized repair on farm equipment, which pharmacies an attack on their sovereignty and quite possibly an existential threat to their livelihood if their tractor breaks at an inopportune time. When crunch time comes and we break down, chances are we don't have time to wait for a dealership employee to show up and fix it. Danny Clethoon, a hog farmer in Nebraska, told his state legislature earlier this month. Most of the new equipment requires a download to fix. The nightmare scenario and I, and fear I heard expressed over and over again talking with farmers is that John Deere could remotely shut down a tractor and there wouldn't be anything a farmer could do about it. A license agreement John Deere requires farmers to sign in October forbids nearly all repair modification to farming equipment and prevents farmers from suing for crop loss, lost profits, loss of goodwill, lost use of equipment, arising from the performance or non-performance of any aspect of the software. The agreement applies to anyone who turns the key or otherwise uses a John Deere tractor with embedded software. It means that only John Deere dealerships and authorized repair shops can work on newer tractors. If a farmer bought the tractor, he should be able to do what he wants with it, Kevin Kenny, a farmer and right repair advocate in Nebraska, told me. You want to replace a transmission, you take it to an independent mechanic, he can put in a new transmission, but the tractor can't drive out of the shop. Deer charges $230 plus $130 an hour per technician to drive out and plug a connector into their USB port to authorize that part. What you've got is technicians running around here with cracked Ukrainian John Deere software that they bought off the black market, he added. Kenny and Cthulhu have been pushing for right-to-repair legislation in Nebraska that would invalidate John Deere's license agreement. Seven other states are considering several bills, uh, similar bills. In the meantime, farmers have started hacking their machines because even simple repairs are made impossible by the embedded software within the tractor. John Deere is one of the staunchest opponents of the legislation. There's a software out there a guy can get his hands on if he looks for it. One par farmer and repairman mechanic in Nebraska who uses cracked John Deere software told me, I'm not a big business or anything, but let's say you get a guy here who has a tractor and something goes wrong with it. The nearest dealership is 40 miles away, but you've got me or a diesel shop about a mile away. The only way we can fix things is illegally. Which is why, which is what is holding back free enterprise more than anything and hampers a farmer's ability to get stuff done too. I went searching for one of the forums where part of John Deere firmware is sold. After I found it, I couldn't do much of anything without joining. I was sent an email with instructions which required me to buy a $25 dummy diagnostic part from a third party website. Instead of the part, I was sent a code to join the forum. Once I was on it, I found dozens of threads from farmers desperate to fix and modify their own tractors. According to people on the forums and the farmers who use it, much of the software is cracked in Eastern European countries such as Poland and the Ukraine, and this sold back to farmers in the United States. Among the programs I saw being traded, uh, John Deere Service Advisor, a diagnostic program used by John Deere technicians that recalibrates tractors and can diagnose broken parts. 
It can program payloads into different controllers. It can calibrate injectors, turbo engine hours, and all kinds of fun stuff. Someone familiar with the software told me. John Deere payload files. These are files that specifically program certain parts of the vehicle. They're parts that they're files that can customize and fine tune the performance of the chassis, engine, and cab, for instance. John Deere electric data link drivers. This is software that allows a computer to talk to the tractor. The EDL is the required interface, which allows a service advisor laptop to actually communicate with the tractor controllers, the source told me. A reverse engineer who goes by the name Decryptor Turning, who I met on the forum, told me they distribute programs that are usually OEM software that is freely available and must be licensed. If things get better, companies like John Deere should be forced to freely distribute the same software the dealers have, they said. And stop locking down engine control module reading functionality. They do this to force you to use their services, which they have 100% monopoly on. Also for sale or free download in the forums is licensed key generators, speed limit modifiers, and reverse engineered cables that allow you to connect a tractor to a computer. These programs are also for sale on several sketchy looking websites that are hosted in Europe and on YouTube. And there's demos of the software in operation. On its face, pirating such software would seem to be illegal. But in 2015, the Librarian of Congress approved an exemption to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act for land vehicles, which includes tractors. The exemption allows modification of computer programs that are contained in and control the functioning of motorized land vehicles such as personal automobiles, commercial motor vehicles, or mechanized agricultural vehicles. When circumvention is necessary, a step undertaken by the authorized owner of the vehicle to allow diagnosis, repair, or lawful modification for a vehicle function. This means modification of the embedded software is legal as long as it can meet emission standards. Whether the exemption allows for the downloading of crack software is an unanswered question. It's no surprise then that John Deere started requiring farmers to sign licensing agreements around the time the exemption went into effect. Violation of the agreement would be considered to be a breach of contract rather than a federal copyright violation, meaning John Deere would have to sue its own customers if it wants the contract to be enforced. I asked John Deere specifically about the fact that a software black market has cropped up for its tractors, but the company instead said there are no repair problems for John Deere customers. When a customer buys John Deere equipment, he or she owns the equipment, the company says. As the owner, he or she has the ability to maintain and repair the equipment. Customer also has the ability through operator and service manuals and other resources to enable operational maintenance, service, and diagnostic activities to repair and maintain equipment. Software modifications increase the risk that the equipment will not function as designed, the company continued. As a result, allowing unqualified individuals to modify an equipment or software can endanger the machine performance, in addition to dear customer, dealers, and others resulting in equipment that no longer complies with industry safety slash environmental regulations. Yeah, Gordon Byrne, executive director of repair.org, a trade organization fighting for the right to repair legislation, told me that John Deere's statement is total crap and noted that some of our members have repeatedly attempted to buy the diagnostics that are referenced from John Deere and then rebuffed. They're required buyers to accept an end user agreement license that disallows all the activities they say are allowed in the statement, she said. Deere is a monopolist and has systematically taken over the role of equipment owner, despite having them paid fairly and fully for equipment. Their claims to control equipment post-purchase are inconsistent with all aspects of ownership, including accounting, taxation, and transfer of products to the secondary market. It's quite simple, really. John Deere sold farmers their tractors, but has used software to maintain control of every aspect of its use after the sale. 
Bethune, for example, uses pig manure to power his tractor, which requires engine modifications that would likely violate John Deere's terms of service on newer machines. I take the hog waste and run it through an aerobic digester, and I've learned to compress the methane, he said. I run 80% methane in my Chevy diesel pickup, and I run 90% methane in my tractor, and they both purr. I take a lot of pride in working on my equipment. Farmers worry what will happen if John Deere is bought by another company, or what will happen if the company decides to stop servicing its tractors. And so they've taken matters into their own hands by taking control of the software themselves. What happens in 20 years when there's a new tractor out and John Deere doesn't want to fix these anymore? The farmer using Ukrainian software told me, are we supposed to throw the tractor in the garbage or what? Yep, it's insane. <laughs> but yeah, I mean... It, it didn't start with John Deere. Car companies have been doing this for quite a while. No. Um, BMW and the mm -hmm. German manufacturers are especially well known for it. Um, although the American companies are catching up rapidly, funnily enough. Um, but yeah, I know loads of people that have nice BMWs and Mercedes, and they are they have been hacked so that third parties can repair. And make modifications. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's ridiculous that you, you, you buy something and it's, it's they, they can stop you using it. Yeah, if I do work on my Mini Cooper or I take it to somewhere that is not an authorized agent that is a Mini Cooper technician, then I void my warranty. Yep. Ah, Germans, <laughs> they're lovely. <laughs> Okay, they're not as bad as John Deere, it must be said. Deere have taken it to a whole new level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they actually have. And it's quite ridiculous that this is allowed to happen. I mean, so you pay for what? You pay for the ability to be told, no, no, it's not really yours. You can't really fix it. You don't really own it. But thank you for the rental money. Yeah. I mean, and tractors go into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's oh, yeah. Not some, like that's, and that's the cheap ones. Yeah. Lightly. Yeah. That's not a light. That's not a. That's not a purchase someone makes lightly. They make their living with that. And they're basically being held hostage because John Deere wants more money. Yep. I mean, um, <sighs> it must. Thing. It's really bad where you are because. Yeah, you you don't have a, <laughs> yeah. like the UK. I said a bit BMW and Mercedes. It's more open here because mm -hmm. we have monopoly laws, so they right. have to allow third party repair people who have to go, you know, pay a license fee. I think it's an annual fee, but it's not a lot because otherwise the court would have hammered them, so that people can. Be, become qualified to repair the vehicles. It basically means they show up, go a couple of hour training course, and they get access to the software. But John Deere are not doing that. Yeah, no, they're completely taken over, and you're going to use our shit, and you're going to use our repair technicians, or you're not going to farm. And of course, yeah, their the repair technicians are theirs and won't modify the vehicle outside what John Deere says it's got to be. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and see, we've got anti-monopoly laws over here too, and I don't understand how they're how they're allowing John Deere to basically operate like that. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the difference being we actually enforce our monopoly laws. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah the minute uh, the minute the big example is um, Sky Television, um, Murdoch okay. is trying to buy it out again. And yet, Rupert we have Murdoch. the Monopolies and Mergers Commission is looking at it again because people are like, this will create a monopoly in news and media. So, yeah, it's still in the air whether it'll actually go ahead or not. I mean, it's about the tenth time Murdoch's tried to do this. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then your courts over there don't bullshit either. Like, they find oh, no. them for every day they're in violation, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, here the vehicle modification market is still wide open. Um, I haven't talked to any farmers about this one because I don't have access to any, uh, in my normal social circles, but yeah, I'm sure that John Deere over here have to behave much the same way as the car companies have to. So they can't just stop you having third parties repair your stuff because that'd be against the law in the UK. Um, well, yeah. I mean, at least you have legal protection there. Yeah. You know, that that's kind of a big thing here. We're just kind of like, no, it's fine. It's fine. Rape the small business. I'll say all, all John Deere can do here is limit what kind of modifications can be made, I would imagine. Because right. that's what the car companies do. You know, mm -hmm. you can't completely change the onboard software and stuff like that. You mm -hmm. can't make it, you know, you can't... F if you force it to work outside normal operating parameters, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like right. that, you've, mm -hmm. as Jeremy said with his car, you void the warranty. So then mm -hmm. you won't get it repaired anymore. And they can, they are, they are allowed to then disable. <laughs> they can't completely disable it, but they can disable the more advanced features of your vehicle. Because that's, it's, trademark copyrighted to them right. so yeah mm -hmm. so you've got to be careful but yeah uh -huh. modifications still happens here uh, okay so i'm gonna say uh what i want to talk about next is a happy little story about reporters wait happy where's genie for this oh no no, no. this this is Question, could U.S. prosecutors, could U.S. prosecute reporters for classified scoops? Maybe. Former New York Times journalist Judith Miller, along with her legal team, including Robert Bennett, uh, leaves New York District Court in Washington in 2007. Miller was jailed for nearly three months after refusing to testify in a CIA leak investigation. Could the U.S. Justice Department prosecute reporters for publishing stories based on classified material? That once tangential, tan, tangential question briefly took center stage during Monday's House Intelligence Committee hearing. As several Republican lawmakers stressed the possible criminality of leaking to the press about the activities of President Trump's advisors and associates, South Carolina GOP rep Trey Garrowdy went a step further asking, is there an exemption in the law for reporters who want to break a story? 
FBI director James Comrie, my favorite, the man who lives in fantasy land who wants us all to just nerd harder to make backdoors possible for everybody, demurred. That's a harder question as to whether a reporter incurs criminal liability by publishing classified information, Comrie said, calling the matter probably beyond my ken. Grady was clearly trying to deflect attention from the investigation to the Trump campaign in Russia, but the issue he raised is central to the practice of journalism. Uh, legal prosecution's far from clear. Inside most American newsrooms, the matter might seem closed. There is a pervasive belief that reporters do not break the law when they break news, even if the scoop involves national security. Ample legal precedent suggests a protection for journalists as long as they do not themselves break the law or encourage or direct others to do so. Perhaps as a result, journalists have not been prosecuted for reporting on such sensitive matters, and yet freedom of the press is absolute even in the U.S. According to a recent paper from the Congressional Research Service, the question is far from settled as a matter of federal law, as is the closely related concern of how well they can protect their confidential sources. University of Kansas media law professor Jonathan Peters wrote in the Harvard Law and Policy Review that any prosecution would have to be narrowly tailored to serve a compelling state interest, or he wrote, the publication would have to result in direct, immediate, and irreparable damage to a nation or its people. But President Trump's sustained rhetorical attacks on the media gave legal experts pause. We're in a new age right now, so all bets are off, said University of North Carolina law professor Mary Rose Papandrea, who has written extensively on the legal status of journalists. It's more of a historical fact that the government has not prosecuted a journalist than any guarantee under the law, she said. Papandrea, a former board member of the Massachusetts chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, says she does not retain 100% confidence the courts would give freedom of the press greater status than national security. Two Supreme Court precedents. Take two U.S. Supreme Court cases decided 30 years apart that are often cited by advocates for press freedom. In 1971, the Supreme Court ruled that the Nixon administration could not prevent the New York Times and the Washington Post from publishing a classified history of the Vietnam War, which came to be known as the Pentagon Papers. In that case, Daniel Ellsberg, a former military analyst who helped develop the history, linked it to reporters for newspapers. That is, secret papers were stolen from the government to be made public. The court found that the news media should not be prevented from publishing the stolen Vietnam history despite protests from government lawyers that it could cause great, the nation great harm. As Justice Hugo Black wrote in one of several concurring opinions, the word security is a broad, vague generality whose contours should not be invoked to abrogate the fundamental law embodied in the First Amendment. The guarding of military and diplomatic secrets at the expense of informed representative government provides no real security for our republic. In 2001, the Supreme Court ruled in a civil case called Batecki v. Volper involving an intercepted cell phone conversation about union investigations. A local radio host, who later obtained the recording of the conversation, played it on the air as part of the coverage of a public debate over the controversial labor deal that was struck. The justices held that the recording of the phone call probably broke the law, but the court dismissed the civil claim against the radio host as he had not commissioned or known of the recording in advance. The ruling created cited the national commitment to the principle that debate on public issues should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open. 
Justice John Paul Stevens wrote the majority opinion, privacy of communication is an important interest. However, in the suit, privacy concerns gave way when balanced against the interest in publishing matters of public importance, a limited precedent. And yet those same cases do not order the same total protection for recorders. Reporters. The University of Chicago legal, legal scholar Jeffrey Stone, in testifying before a Senate Judiciary Committee in favor of greater legal protection for reporters and their sources, once called the privileged journalists have an in, in, intermediate one, far from absolute. Reporters have no legal or moral right to promise confidentiality beyond what is recognized in the law. Such promises should always be interpreted as subject to the rule of law. In the Pentagon paper course uh, cases, the Supreme Court justices ruled six to three for the journalists, but for differing reasons. It was indeed a great victory for the press and was hailed by advocates of freedom of speech. And the justices didn't block the government from exercising what's called prior restraint, that is preventing a news organization from publicing or broadcasting news. What precise bar prosecutions would need to clearly justify prior restraint has not been defined in the modern era. Similarly, in the civil case involving the Pennsylvania labor negotiations, the decision articulated principles giving freedom of the press greater statute than privacy concerns. Such claims are invoked in defending journalists' decision to publish sensitive information and to withhold the identity of confidential sources, as the latter is often required to achieve the former. But that wasn't a criminal case, and it didn't involve national security. So Bertiki does not settle Grady's question either. Through almost all the states have some protections against reporters having to divulge the identity of their sources. The federal government relies on policies that discourage rather than prevent the compulsion of such disclosures. When presidents go after reporters, I need to take a drink, y'all. I'm just going to take a second here. This is very long and very wordy. <laughs> um, during the George W. Bush and Obama administrations, reporters often came under pressure from prosecutors to reveal sources. Judith Miller, then a reporter for the New York Times, spent 85 days in prison for refusing to disclose who had told her the identity of an undercover CIA agent. New York Times reporter James Risen was ordered to testify in a case involving a CIA source, which, in, which was initiated under the Bush administration and prosecuted in the Obama years. Fox News reporter James Rosen was declared an unindicted co-conspirator under the Espionage Act during an investigation of the State Department advisor classified information involving North Korea. The official went to prison. And yet, even at their most aggressive moments, the, these administrations did not take steps to prosecute reporters relying on leaks of classified information. Papandrea, the UNC law professor, says she was heartened by the Bush administration's decision not to prosecute reporters at the New York Times for disclosing warrantless wiretapping programs at the National Security Agency. Free press slash national security toggle. As the White House switches between the parties, Republican and Democratic attorney generals often toggle back and forth between a stated emphasis on national security and transparency. Former Obama administration attorney general Eric Holder later said he regretted designating Fox's Rosen as a co-conspirator to a crime and announced he would not, as he put it, seek to send the reporter to jail for doing their job. Though the Justice Department succeeded in getting a subpoena for the testimony of the Times-Rosen in the trial leak, in the end, Holder did not force him to testify. Earlier this year, Attorney General Jeff Sessions would not directly answer when asked at his confirmation hearing whether he would subpoena or prosecute reporters. The Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press noted that he opposed legal protections for reporters who refused to disclose the identity of their sources in court. Even though there's been lots of sound and fury against the press, and maybe 
the way Trump expresses himself is a little less polished. The animosity against the press has been around for a very long time, Papandrea said. So I, I guess it's not so clear. Yeah. I've got one. I've got one statement about this as far as the leaking of classified information and if it should be prosecuted or not. Iran contra Oliver North. You know, there's there's a lot of if you believe in the concept of the deep state, and I do. You know, I, I believe in the deep state. We've been talking about this has been talked about before it was ever talked about in the United States. It was talked about in other countries for years and years and years. It's a political theory, right? This is something they teach you in political science class. And trust me, I know about that. Um, the deep state is an actual thing, and it happens when every country's security gets very big. Um, there's always a deep state. There's always someone behind the government. And there are people that you look at all the time and they represent the face of the government, you know, but there's always someone behind that, whether it's contractors, whether it's the national security state, whether, you know, whether it's the military industrial, there's always something behind all of these things. And I think, with public opinion such as it is, it, it's very hard to actually prosecute a reporter. Although I think people are getting fed up with being treated like mushrooms by the mainstream media. Um, oh, I agree. They've completely lost all credibility to the point to where, you know, if somebody gets, you know, especially if it were a reporter for CNN, say, that broke something that they shouldn't have, or if, uh, was it Rachel Maddow? Uh, if she gets prosecuted for leaking confidential, you know, information, the papers that she held up at the camera, they've already proven you can go back and zoom in on those and his mm -hmm. social security number is right there. Right. That's private personal information that you just leaked that belonged to someone else. Mm -hmm. That's prosecutable in my book. Right. Well, I mean, it's really hard to have this decision and uh, this discussion, and especially now, very, that they say in the UK they're going to prosecute reporters that publish leaks, yeah. that work with confidential sources. Um, I think this is a very dangerous time. Yes. They're essentially eviscerating the Fourth Estate. Not that the Fourth Estate has stood for much in recent times, you know. But, but it's, uh, they're, they're, I mean, they say they're going to in the UK. Whether they actually get to or not is a different matter. Uh, the media here, for the most part, is a lot more open than mm -hmm. on your side of the pond. But they do fight. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> do. Yep. I mean, th there, there are journalists here that will happily go to jail to protect yeah. sources. You know, I mean, there are certain things that are so essential to our knowledge of, of how the government runs that not knowing about them is a crime. I, I firmly believe that. Yeah. And whether you find out things through WikiLeaks, which I'm not really a fan of, I have real problems with the way they do shit, um, or you find it out through The Intercept, or you find it out through Fox News, or you find it out through Rachel Maddow, 
or you find it out from something that I really like, um, The Empire Files mm-hmm. on Teleser. Um, whether you find out these things one of those ways, uh, they're essential to us having a debate about the kind of government that we want, not the kind of government that shows us its public face. Um, and I don't know that you can operate without a press that is free from fear of being thrown in jail. Otherwise, you become one of the Koreas. Or Turkey, or, or Russia. Yeah, see, or, or Russia. Yeah, exactly. See, that was the whole... That was the whole purpose of the fourth estate, though, was that, you know, you have three branches of government that have mm-hmm. checks and balances. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, one branch of government can't just usurp the authority of the other two and just do whatever the hell it wants to willy-nilly. And that was kind of the purpose of the fourth estate, was to be that fourth check and balance mm-hmm. of popular opinion and let the people decide yeah. what was what was right and good for the nation. Yeah. And that's dying. It is. It's dead. And I'm not saying that this show does a great job shedding a light on anything. I don't know. I think we talk about privacy concerns. We talk about encryption. We talk about vulnerabilities to your electronic equipment. I don't know that any of this is breaking news kind of stuff. It's not. But the fact that tomorrow this could all go away scares me. Right? The fact that Oh, even podcasters like, say, Joe Rogan, you know, who is kind of nutty and and kind of strange, but really does talk about some important things, could be censored. Stephen Crowder. Yeah, there's a lot of people that could be censored who have a lot of good information that you should really digest before you form an opinion. And the idea that that could go away and you'd just be forced to accept whatever shoved down your throat is is abhorrent to me. I hate it. I'm no fan of the mainstream media, but you have to keep the press free, I think. Otherwise, you just become no better than any other dictatorship. And ah, I really don't like the idea of that. Does anybody have any thoughts on a story they would like to read out of the document or they'd like me to read up the document. There's some other stuff here. Because uh, I could go on about press freedom all night and y'all want to hang yourselves by the end of it. <laughs> well, um, man we're... jailed indefinitely for refusing to decrypt hard drives loses appeal, maybe? Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, I'll go down to that. Uh, I want you to understand... Was it H.L. Mencken? The, can anybody pull up the H.L. Mencken quote about scoundrels? Jeremy, are, are, you, are you free anywhere near your computer? Yeah, I'm right here. Okay. Um, H.L. Mencken, can you type that in? H-L-M-E-N-C-K-E-N. Scoundrels quote. And let me know if you come up with it. Because before I read this, I want to read that. Or I want somebody to read that quote. Because I think it's important because this guy's not a good guy. Um, yeah. Hang on, I got it. Have uh, you got it? Okay. Yeah. Where is it? Um, the trouble with fighting for human freedom is that one spends most of one time, most of one's time, defending scoundrels. 
for it is against scoundrels that oppressive laws are first aimed, and oppression must be stopped at the beginning if it is to be stopped at all. Man jailed indefinitely for refusing to decrypt hard drives loses appeal. This guy's a scumbag. Our client has now been in custody for almost 18 months, a defense attorney says. On Monday, a U.S. federal appeals court sided against a former Philadelphia police officer who has been in jail for 17 months because he invoked his Fifth Amendment right against compelled self-incrimination. He refused to comply with a court order commanding him to unlock two hard drives authorities say contain child porn. Again, this guy is a scumbag. The three point the three to zero decision by the Third Circuit U.S. Uh, Third Circuit Court of Appeals means that the suspect Francis Rawls will likely remain jailed indefinitely or until the court order finding him in contempt of court is lifted or overturned. However, he can still comply with the order and unlock two file vault encrypted drives connected to his Apple Mac Pro. Using a warrant, authorities seized those drives from his residence in 2015. While Rawls could get out from under the contempt order by unlocking those drives, doing so might expose him to other legal troubles. Might? Mm-hmm. In <laughs> yeah. In deciding against Rawls, the Court of Appeals found that the constitutional rights against being compelled to testify against oneself were not being breached. That's because the appeals court, like the police, agreed that the presence of child porn on his drives was a foregone conclusion. The Fifth Amendment, at its most basic level, protects suspects from being forced to disclose incriminating evidence. In this instance, however, the authorities said they already know there's child porn on the drives, so Rawls' constitutional rights aren't compromised. The Philadelphia-based appeals court ruled. The forensic examination also disclosed that Doe, Rawls, had downloaded thousands of files known by their hash values to be child pornography. Those files, however, were not on the Mac Pro, but instead have been stored on the encrypted external hard drives. According to the files themselves, could not be accessed. The court also noted that authorities found on the MacBook Pro one image depicting a pubescent girl in a sexually suggestive position and logs that suggested the user had visited groups with titles common in child exploitation. They also said the man's sister had reported that her brother showed her hundreds of pictures and videos of child pornography. All of this, according to the appeals court, and that the lower court lawfully ordered Rawls to unlock the drives. The magistrate judge did not commit a clear or obvious error in the application of his foregone conclusion doctrine, the court ruled. In this regard, the magistrate judge rested his decision rejecting the Fifth Amendment challenge on factual findings that are simply supported by the record. The suspect's attorney, federal public defender Keith Donahue, was disappointed in the ruling. The fact remains that the government has now fought charges. Donahue said in his telephone interview, our client has now been in custody for almost 18 months based on his assertion of his Fifth Amendment right against self-compelled self-incrimination. A child porn investigation focused on Rawls when the authorities were monitoring the online network Freenet. The decision from the appeals court comes as encryption is becoming more common on mobile phones and computers. What's more, encryption has seemingly become part of the national political discussion concerning whether Government should demand that companies bake backdoors into their encrypted products so that authorities can access content on encrypted devices. The Supreme Court has never ruled on the forced decryption issue. A different federal appeals court, the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals based in Denver, ruled in 2012 that a bank fraud defendant must decrypt her laptop. 
the order wasn't enforced, however, as the authorities eventually accessed the laptop without her assistance. The contempt of court order against Rawls was obtained by authorities um, was obtained by authorities citing the 1789 All Writs Act. The All Writs Act was the same law that the Justice Department asserted in its legal battle with Apple, in which a magistrate judge ordered Apple to produce code to enable the FBI to decrypt the iPhone used by one of two shooters who killed 14 people at a San Bernardino County government building. The government dropped the case when authorities paid a reported $1 million for hack. Unless the suspect unlocks the drives or a court awaits the order, he will remain jailed. Mark Rumford, an Electronic Frontier staff attorney who filed a front of the court brief in the case, said in a telephone interview. In that brief, the EFF said compelled decryption is inherently testimonial because it compels a suspect to use the contents of their mind to translate unintelligible evidence into a form that can be used against them. The Fifth Amendment provides an absolute privilege against such self-incrimination compelled decryption. The authorities, however, said no testimony was needed from Rawls. After all, they said he can keep his passwords to himself and produce his computer and hard drives in an unencrypted state. So, I see yeah. how you tell Mankin. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think they need to have him decrypt it. If they've got the hash values and he knowingly transmitted those which he undoubtedly did then he's guilty i'm not saying the man isn't guilty i'm saying it's what should concern us is that he is held without charge for 18 months yeah should concern us i mean that's saying they have other evidence he should have been charged charged by now exactly you don't sit and they've had They've had these drives for more than long enough for even mm-hmm. even a low-level encryption person to have been able to decrypt them. They're just this is a this is a in my mind this is a pissing contest. Yeah, you know? I mean they're they, base they are basing this on mm-hmm. assumption. Mm-hmm. A judge should not make assumptions. No, they should. That's it. That 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 is against what their job is. Yes, that is true. They've also had it long enough, like you said, to have some low-level intern decrypt stuff. There are programs out there that can decrypt anything. I can go get one right now. Yeah. Yeah. You can go get one right now. They're not terribly expensive. They could run them on his drives, no problem. They're not doing it, and they're not doing it. And they're depriving him of his liberty by keeping him indefinitely detained on American soil. Oh, and in fact, not supposed to happen to American citizens. They don't even actually need to do straight decryption on it. It's a external hard drive. Mm -hmm. There are people who can take the platters out of the hard drive and raw copy every bit of data on there Mm -hmm. and do raw read. Which is going to destroy any, which is going to get around any low-level yeah. encryption. Because mm-hmm. yeah. low-level yeah. encryption only relies on masking the file names and stuff like mm-hmm. that, so that it can't be yeah. read properly. Yeah. But if yeah. you read it directly off the platter, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't hold. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, he should have been charged by now. 
Oh yeah. This I don't yeah. know whether this is incompetence, uh, whether this is a test case to see how long they can hold somebody without charging them, without people having a shit fit or what. But this violates this man's justice. Yeah, it does. His his right to a speedy trial. Yes, it does. He should have been charged. Speedy trial. He's not even been charged. That's it. It's <laughs> I mean, indefinite yeah. detention. Yeah. This yes. is indefinite detention on American soil, which is something that is not supposed to happen. Yeah. Charge me or let me go. Yes, exactly. So that's the problem I have with this case. That's the problem I've always had with this case. I think this guy is a scumbag and deserves to go to jail for many, 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 many years. And what the fuck was wrong with his sister? You know? She had, he had shown her images of this many, 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 many times, and she never fucking turned him in. She was just like, oh, yeah, okay, really? Who does that? You know, I, I just, I don't, this whole case, I yeah, just yeah. don't Yeah, yeah, in my it. family, if this had happened, uh, yeah. I'd be dead. Yeah, Because exactly. my sister would have killed me. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, like I said, this guy's a scumbag, but... He deserves the right to be charged and to face his accusers no matter what. He, he, this is a right we all have. And when you take it away from some piece of shit, no matter what they've done, it makes it easier for them to take it away from the rest of us. That is my problem with this case. Yeah, I mean, I it sets a precedent that now it does. any it judge does. anywhere can... Basically, rule on a fucking hunch. Yeah. They can rule on a damn hunch if they feel like it. And yeah, how they, is that right? you don't actually need evidence anymore. No, I just, just I oh feel, well, that guy said that you're guilty, so yeah. Yeah, I feel like you might have done something. I feel like you did something wrong. You know, um, I I just don't get it. I don't get it. I don't. <sighs> That's, well, I dropped that's something into a scary story there. Father yeah, I dro- beat to death Manny mm-hmm. his five-year-old daughter will not be face charges because of Texas state law and deadly force. No, he he deserved to be beaten to death. Yes, I'm sorry. Did. No, he he. Yeah, that Let guy deserved the... to be beaten to death. The father deserved to be cleared. Um, you know, that's not in my humble opinion. That is not a miscarriage of justice. What's happening to the scumbag child molest? molesting you know film buff um what's happening to him is a miscarriage of justice i don't get it but anyway you were saying i was gonna say let me uh, something yeah let me bring up uh the vp live chat and i'll drop it into chat for everybody there okay yeah i'm probably gonna be dropping in and out looking at this um can you guys talk for a minute i i need to get off discord i think it needs to update for a second. Oh, you're having yeah. Yeah, having... it's I'm having connection issues. So okay. yeah. I will be I will be right back. Okay. We could be playing soothing music right now, but we're not going to because we're that's that that's not the kind of show we are. I have Bjork queued <laughs> up, but I don't think people no, like no, that. no no yeah, no 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 thanks. No. <laughs> uh, uh you wanna just carry on with the next story? And uh, no we'll we'll wait for John. I've got I've I've pasted your story no, into um VP live chat. Do you have that old that? song uh, 
Ain't no sunshine when oh she's God. gone. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm back and no. Okay. I'm back and no. <laughs> so, yeah. I think it's pretty much that. It's almost that simple. Um, what's fair for us is fair for the biggest scumbag on planet Earth. Yeah. That's, that's as soon as you start on. making exceptions, you've broken yeah. the system. You have. You have it's saying fuck their rights is saying fuck my rights and fuck your rights. It's it's the same thing. Um, so yeah. Uh, okay. This is just quick, and it's not really anything. But if you have Google Nest, you might want to be aware. Burglars can easily make Google Nest security scam cameras stop recording. Google Nest's DropCam, DropCam Pro, NestCam Outdoor, and NestCam Indoor security cameras can be easily disabled by an attacker that's in their Bluetooth range a security researcher has found. The vulnerabilities are present in the latest firmware version running on the devices V5.2.1. They were discovered by researcher Jason Doyle last fall, and their existence responsibly disclosed to Google, but they still have not been patched. The vulnerabilities. The first two flaws can be triggered and lead to a buffer overflow condition if the attacker sends to the camera a too long Wi-Fi SSID parameter or long encrypted password parameter, respectively. That's easy to do as Bluetooth is never disabled after the initial setup of the cameras and attackers, e.g. burglars, can usually come close enough to then perform the attack. Triggering one of these flaws will make the devices crash and reboot. The third flaw is a bit more serious as it allows the attacker to force the camera to temporarily disconnect from the wireless network to which it is connected by supplying it a new SSID to connect to. If that particular SSID does not exist, the camera drops its attempt to associate with it and return to the original Wi-Fi network, but the whole process can last from 60 to 90 seconds, during which the camera won't be recording. Doyle has released the POC exploits for each flaw. What can you do about it? Unfortunately, Bluetooth can't be disabled on these cameras, so there is little users can do to minimize this particular risk. Nest has, Nest has apparently already prepared a patch, but hasn't pushed it out yet. It is supposedly scheduled to be released soon, but no definite date has been offered. So that was just a little thing, if because I know we've talked about before, a lot of us have security cameras enabled on our doors and stuff so that we can make sure what of what's going on when we're not at home well i i have I, I use this amazing technology called cables hmm. yes well uh, and in places that somebody outside my premises can't get at the <laughs> cables which makes it much harder to hack funnily enough uh yeah, I mean, we've talked about the most secure thing you can do is have a wired connection. Yeah. That is oh, the most that's... secure any of your devices will ever be. What? Well, there's, um, I was reading a story the other day about how they're working with technology, experimental technology, to be able to basically hack a wired connection using they... the electromagnetic fields. Oh, yeah, that, that's been known about for that's... a long time, yeah. but it's a lot there's... more complex than... There's just being able to turn up at your property and use wireless to do it. <laughs> yeah. I, there's a lot of stuff that they can do. I mean, I keep 
I keep saying you really need to watch Protect and Infect Part 2 from the Chaos Computer Conference in Germany. God, I, what, when was it? It was like um, 2006, 2008. Um, and it's Jacob Applebaum giving a talk about all of the all of the things that they can do to your computer before you get them. And it's showing all of these things from these government catalogs that they get from different companies that are just different ways they can hack your machine or make it hackable or put a backdoor in it. And it's really, really terrifying. It it scares you. If if you can look at that and not be scared, um, you, (laughs) by God, you scare me. You scare me. But, yeah, and, I mean, the, the top-of-the-range security systems for cameras and the like now cost an absolute fortune because, as Jeremy said, there's this magnetic spectrum thing you can do with cabling. So the highest security systems now, when they install them, all the cabling is shielded, literally to be able to detect the electromagnetic signal of the cables, you'd have to have your detector on the cable. The boxes are similarly armoured, and of course it's not connected to the internet. They also use power isolators, which basically scramble the system for the power source, because that's the main way those magnetic field methods work, is you look at you go in through the power network in the building and you're detecting the fluctuations in the electricity input and output from the system. So, yeah, now the high-secure systems have basically isolated power sources, shielded equipment, shielded cabling, and that costs an awful lot of money. So most places don't do it, but it's there if you want it. (laughs) Yeah. Um... So yeah, there is, there is that. I stuck to protect and affect part two in the chat. Uh, part three is similarly scary. Part one is similarly scary. Part two made me sick to my stomach. But you really should watch it. And I don't care what people say about Jacob Applebaum. This is really worth watching. He, he did a very good job with this. Whatever his personal issues are, whatever he's done... Um, after this doesn't matter. You still deserve to know what the government can do to you, I think. Yeah. So there's that. Um, Somebody asked me why I didn't use Tor anymore. (laughs) Um, Because you don't want the CIA reading everything you do? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'm not really really a super fan of, you know, I, I... yeah, not really a super fan of the CIA. I don't think I'm going to read this tonight because um, I haven't fully vetted it, but I'm going to stick this in chat for people to look at if they want to. Um, this is all about tour. Yeah. So uh, the title is uh, Pandora. Almost everyone involved in developing tour was or is funded by the U.S. government. And this is really worth reading. I'm going to dig harder into it. Um, 
and it's from 2014. I haven't really looked through it all and vetted it when I do. We'll probably be talking about yeah. it. And But it's reasonably well known that basically it was one of these CIA-funded mm-hmm. uh, projects originally. Yeah, but... So, yeah. Oh, it, it was. I mean, well, in U.S. Navy essentially yeah. did most of the work on this. And then for some reason they said, well, we can't have this released to the general population. Um, everyone will see a connection from the onion router and go, oh, for fuck's sake, it's the spooks again. Yeah. So we need to release something that everybody can use. Okay. So they gave it to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And the Electronic Frontier Foundation went nuts with this and said, oh, this is great. We'll release it. What you don't understand is how much government funding is actually behind TOR. And I would ask the question, how did they get Dread Pirate Roberts? (laughs) You know what I mean? How how are they able to do the things they can do if TOR is not essentially vulnerable? And then that brings us to I2P, which is a little better i think we're actually going to have to start building mesh networks um it's really hard to conceal a pattern in all the noise but it can be done uh i just think better minds than mine need to be working on it (laughs) yeah so um yeah i just thought that was interesting it's something people should read if they're um involved in reporting or involved in political advocacy or they have friends who are dissidents or whatever and and they 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 um talk to people that uh maybe the government would be interested in speaking with as well yeah so there is that um cell phones you've got to go do the cell phones okay that's that's a big story um, As an importance, know, not size. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just give me a second. And see, I shut the window when I was doing something else. I shut the window because these, everything's in different windows and different computer programs running everything. So the cell phone story. The very last one? Well, the Supreme Supreme Court Court one? Yeah. Okay. I think this is important, although God knows what will happen with it. Supreme Court rules cell phones cannot be searched without a warrant. Police need a warrant to search the cell phone of a person who has been arrested. Absent special circumstances, a unanimous Supreme Court ruled Wednesday. Modern cell phones are not just another technological convenience. With all that they contain and all they may reveal, they hold for many Americans the privacies of life, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote. The fact that technology now allows an individual to carry such information in his hand does not make the information any less worthy of the protection for which the founders fought. Our answer to the question of what police must do before searching a cell phone seized incident to an arrest is accordingly simple get a warrant. The high court took two cases involving cell phone searches, one involving a smartphone and the other involving a relatively basic flip phone. In both cases, police used information on each phone to connect the plaintiffs to crimes. San Diego police used pictures in David Leon Riley's smartphone 
and the guns they found in his trunk after pulling him over for a traffic violation to tie him to a local faction of the Blood Street Gang and an earlier shooting. In Boston, Brahma Worry was arrested on suspicion of being involved in selling drugs and a picture linked to a phone call on his flip phone to a stash of crack cocaine. The decision will likely have long-lasting implications for digital privacy, far beyond the immediate concerns surrounding how and when the police can search a mobile device. Police are typically allowed to search an individual after an arrest, but Roberts wrote that the amount of personal information contained in a cell phone made such a search different from the usual uh, objects authorities might find when asking someone to empty their pockets. A cell phone search would typically expose the government to far more than the most exhaustive search of a house, he wrote. A phone not only contains in digital form many sensitive records previously found in the home, it also contains a broad array of private information never found in a home in any form unless the phone is. The court held that the exigent circumstances exception to the warrant requirement also applied to cell phones. That is, imminent danger to life or the possibility that evidence would be destroyed might justify in searching a phone without a warrant. Justice Samuel Alito, in a concurrence, opened the door to further exceptions. Alito wrote that he would reconsider the question presented here if either Congress or state legislators, after asserting the legitimate needs of law enforcement and the privacy interests of cell phone owners, enact legislation that draws reasonable distinctions based on the categories of information on or perhaps other variables. Civil libertarians groups argued that advances in technology mean that the right of individuals to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, or effects, as a guarantee by the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, mean that police should seek warrants before rifling through suspects' and mobile devices. The government countered that those same technological advancements and aid criminals, and that remote wiping and encryption could be used to destroy or conceal evidence of serious crimes. At oral argument, the justices seemed split over where to draw the line for when police should seek a warrant to search a mobile device, and some seemed confused about modern social media applications. Yet, ultimately, the High Court was unanimous in its judgment. Robert's opinion embraced arguments long advanced by civil liberties groups about the need to reinterpret the Fourth Amendment in light of new technologies. The term cell phone in, is itself misleading shorthand. Many of these devices are, in fact, many computers that also happen to have the capacity to be used as a telephone, Roberts wrote. They could just as easily be called cameras, video players, Rolodexes, cameras, tape recorders, libraries, diaries, albums, televisions, maps, or newspapers. Modern cell phones contain an incredible amount of information. At 16 gigabytes, the smallest iPhone model can hold a football field's worth of books, according to a brief filed by the Center for Democracy and Technology in the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Nine of 10 Americans, according to a survey by the Pew Center, own cell phones, and more than half, 55%, were identified as smartphones. Cell phones, Roberts joked in his opinion, are now such pervasive and insistent part of daily life that the proverbial visitor from Mars might conclude they were an important feature of the human anatomy. Yeah, I mean, this is... Uh, this is big. The, it's big. Finally, the judges seem to have woken up and gone, yeah. Huh? What? They're doing what now? The G. Yeah. This is I, I, this is over. You know, this is stepping on people's rights. Yeah. Finally, I mean, judges are okay. You can tell from the story, not all of them completely get it yet, but no. some of them have finally oh, realized. Yeah. It's not a phone. It's a computer. Exactly. 
just because you can carry it in your pocket or carry it on a belt clip or carry it in your purse doesn't make it any less a computer. Yeah, but the... Doesn't make it any less your personal books and papers. The argument over over exigent circumstances, that's going to go on for... Ever. Forever, yeah. Yeah. What outs the police can have, you know. Yeah, but now we have a little bit of protection and now we can say... The Fourth Amendment does apply to the things that we carry on our phones. We were never able to say that before. We could say we believed it. We could say we thought it. But we never had anything backing us up. And now we do. I mean, it's it's a big thing. It's huge. Yes. But the next problem lies in the fact that when at, as that one gentleman that worked for JPL discovered that when you're at a port entry, you have no, you don't have the same rights. You're not on I, U.S. soil yet. I don't have the same rights as any of you. I don't have the same rights as any of you don't because of where you live. I don't because of where I live because of that wonderful 100-mile border surrounding the United States. Yep. You and I don't have the same rights as other people do because no, of we where don't. we live. Yep. And that's a problem. Yes. But I'm excited for other people. They finally have a little bit of protection. You and I don't, but other people do. Yeah. And well, I'm amazing. fairly okay because, yeah, I'm further afield. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, The police here bit. are hilarious. I think I've told you before. They can arrest somebody, and mm-hmm. they're not allowed to access the phone until they get a warrant, which right. is good. Which is as it should be. But they are allowed to leave the phone turned on and monitor incoming and mm-hmm. calls oh, and texts. Calls. Because <laughs> yeah. well, it's the phone's in their possession, mm-hmm. but they don't have to turn it off. They huh. can even plug it in a charger and keep it going. <laughs> yeah, and that thumbprint shit is the dumbest. Never lock your shit with biometric data. Unless, unless it's a phone with a built-in retinal scanner. Yeah, <laughs> mm. uh, but and never use just biometrics. No. Always no. have at least no. a PIN code as well. Yeah, I would well, still recommend PIN code, not swipe code else. and all that crap. Well, I PIN code is the above. best. Yeah, it is. It's the hardest to crack. Because you swipe the, the, the swipe codes, you know, you swipe the pattern on the screen. Right. Yeah. How greasy are your fingers, phone yeah, owner? Well, no when the police get the phone, can they no look at can they no, angle think... it to the light and see the pattern you keep putting on the phone repeatedly? Yeah. Well, no, it's I'm... not quite that easy, but they do have uh, UV, it's ultraviolet light scanners that can actually scan the surface of the Gorilla Glass and determine the polished portions of it that are most rubbed. Oh, no, it is that easy. I've opened people's phones in the bar. <laughs> And oh, changed well, their phones yeah. to foreign languages, relocked them, and put them back down while they've gone to the toilet. Just, <laughs> just because. Just for fun. Yeah, it's funny. The person <laughs> comes back and their phones in Arabic. They're like, "Oh my god." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would recommend an alphanumeric code, uh, mostly numeric, because there have been studies done on it. That is the hardest thing for any sort of encryption algorithm to crack. Yeah, because you have to, the have to, the way to yeah. decrypt and break that, it's processional. They can't, mm-hmm. They basically have to try 
every option until they get the right one. Yeah. That's why and it always works. Yep, and it takes me years. Years. Well, no, it doesn't take years anymore. Uh, the power of computational anymore, devices these days. Yeah. It'll still take a long, long time, but yeah. it also yeah. depends how many characters you've used. Yeah, that's true too. So, there's that. And we're coming up on the 8 o'clock hour. Does anybody have any traction to anything in here? I would just like to say that, you know, that now that they've... Now that the Supreme Court has determined that, yes, it is considered a computer, do you think they'll stop passing messages in ink and quill and parchment? <laughs> no. God. No. No. That would be a no. step too far for them. Yeah. No, well, no, you can't no. hack that, I'll admit it. You can't. And then I'm you can't sure have them joining think... the 19th century. I mean, come on. <laughs> Surprised they're not still wearing powdered wigs. Well. Hey, over here they yeah. do. Yeah, that was a specific jab. <laughs> well, you know. Okay, although although our judges are also tech savvy, <laughs> which well, surprises people. Yeah. There's something to be said for tradition, you know. Well, we've got a we've got a judge here in Austin that mm -hmm. they're trying to oust her because of her political leanings and her opinions. Like mm -hmm. a judge is supposed to be completely ambiguous. Yeah, in, neutral. You know, in their opinion, totally neutral, just to interpret the law as the law. Don't bring in your private, you know, your own personal bias. And she was wearing one of those pink pussycat hats in the <laughs> middle of court. And the counselors are like, look, we can't even take you seriously right now. It's a distraction. And she refused to take it off. So they're trying to oust her. You know, a lot of the problem stems from the fact that these judges are just kind of appointed. Some of them, you know, some of them have no legal background at all. And that's why you yeah. see this, this diverse strangeness in the United States courts that I don't think you see. I, I especially don't think you see that so much in the UK, do you? It, we do. The only weird judges we have, it's it's the usual they get old and and go a bit wrong. Uh, that's the only outright yeah. strain when you see outright strange behaviour and decisions. Yeah. Um, and then we've talked about. I've talked to John about this before. It's quite hilarious in the UK. You you get these judges and they get older and yeah, they're starting to have the age mental issues, but they don't get retired. They still stay a judge. They just don't get allocated any cases anymore. <laughs> you know, they they slowly reduce their workload. And, you know, they're still going in and going to their meetings and all this kind of stuff, but they never actually, you know, they slowly get sidelined. <laughs> Until they get the message, oh yeah, I should retire. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's probably a kind way to do things, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean, basi a... basically they... they they reduce their workload on major cases and put them down to doing lower priority work. You know, like um, well, the equivalent, the equivalent in in the U.S. would be they're a senior judge, but they're being asked to deal with all the traffic offences. Yeah, yeah, don't let them deal with the important cases. Just put them on the normal day to day stuff. Yeah, and and if they get weird doing that, then you bump them completely, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, Didn't you all have a magistrate here recently that was uh, uh, narcoleptic, kept falling asleep on the bench? It's quite possible. <laughs> I could have swear I read a story about that. It's, but it's yeah, again, ma um, even magistrates in the UK have to have legal training, um, let alone the judges. I mean, it's mm -hmm. uh, it's it's eye-opening when there's me, I grew up in the UK, but when I found out about how your legal system is in the US, it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> how how did that... Well, I know kind of how it came about, but why is it still the same way? Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, historically the UK was the same. Judges used to just be appointed, blah, 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 blah. But mm -hmm. that went out hundreds of years ago, and it became a profession... You know, you can't call yourself a professional when you have people doing your job who don't have any qualifications in that job. <laughs> it's not a we profession. Well, we can hear. I mean, don't forget, yeah. people get people get elected to the office corner here. Yeah. You know, and that can be any idiot who's never dealt with a dead body. You know what I mean? Anybody can be a coroner. And it's the same with judgeships. And that's terrifying to me. Uh, somebody with no legal training, no clue, you know, nothing. I, I, did, I did law in college, which means nothing, of course. Uh, <laughs> that That's what a, a lot of the appointees, you see that. Because, you know, you read the announcements. Oh, such and such has been appointed to be a judge in Alabama or whatever. And you read their bio, and it's like, you know, and, you know, the all our major qualifications are in business. Of yeah. course, it's a story about them being appointed to judge. So it's like, and and did courses in law when they're in college? You're like, <laughs> yeah. So it was yeah. a timetable filler for them. Yeah, that's yeah. reassuring. Uh. <laughs> so I thought this was interesting. We talk about fake news. Um. This story was just interesting to me. Um, Truth or Lives, Santa Monica police used fake news to release to thwart murder. The revelation that some internet users pull out fake news during the election season caused a lot of controversy, but fake news can possibly serve a beneficial function. In February, the Santa Monica Police Department issued a ruse press release that was subsequently reported by local news media the sun has learned. But instead of being accused of swaying presidential elections, the fake news apparently had a greater purpose. It was used to save lives. According to court documents reviewed by the sun, the SMPD issued a February 12th press release that stated two men from Guadalupe were arrested on suspicion of identity fraud and were turned over to Immigrations and Custom Enforcement. The press release came several weeks before SMPD's announcement on the conclusion of Operation Matador, the year-long operation that led to the arrests of 17 alleged MS-13 gang members in Santa Monica and included help from several federal law enforcement agencies. Police allege in the court documents that the member of the local MS-13 gang planned to kill the two men referred to in the court documents as John Doe 1 and John Doe 2. Police had gleaned this information from telephone surveillance on several suspects in the case, according to documents. The police acted by putting out 
false press release expecting local news media to report the fake story and the MS-13 gang members to stop pursuing the John Doe's. SMPD's police chief, Ralph Martin, confirmed with the Sun that the press release was indeed fake and the two men were neither armed nor had they committed the crimes outlined in the press release. He also added that his department doesn't run, doesn't turn undocumented immigrants over to ICE. Martin defended the decision to release the false, false press release, saying it very likely saved the two men's lives. <clears throat> it was the right thing to do from the police department's perspective, though it may make news reporters feel a bit slighted. Cal Poly journalism ethics professor and attorney Bill Loving explained, the police department runs the risk of losing that valuable conduit to the public through the news media, Loving said. They were simply being used. Several local media news organizations, including KSBY, KYET, and the Santa Monica Times reported the information provided in the press release. They weren't aware the information they reported was fake until they were informed by The Sun recently. The Sun reached out to each uh, outlet for comment. KSBY and KYET returned The Sun's request for comment. Um, both outlets supported the SMPD's effort to protect citizens, but were nonetheless disturbed by the untruth. Jim Lemon, KYET's news director, said his reporter should have known something was amiss after reading the press release that the police turned the suspects over to ICE, knowing that wasn't the department's policy. We know this was an effort <clears throat> on the part of law enforcement to protect them, Lemon wrote in an emailed statement. Yet I fear by intentionally planting false information, those efforts may elicit too high a cost in credibility. Kendra Martinez, news director for KSBY, found the fake press release more troubling. While we strongly support the police department's efforts to protect citizens in harm's way, Martinez wrote in an emailed statement, we are concerned that this type of deception can erode the basic trust of our residents and viewers. This isn't the first time a law enforcement agency has purposely issued false information to the media. In 2014, police in Ottawa, Canada used a fake press release to capture two people who were suspected of killing Jedigar Gill, according to the Ottawa Citizen. Still, it's an uncommon practice. SMPD's Chief Martin told The Sun that in his 40 years of working in law enforcement, this is the first instance of using a ruse press release in this way, and it's the first time SMPD has issued one. While instances of police using fake press releases are rare, lying to suspects in order to solve crimes is not. The 1969 U.S. Supreme Court case of Frazier v. Cup affirmed the legal use of deceptive interrogation tactics. In 2011, the Sun reported how the SMPD and Santa Barbara County District Attorney's Office used fake affidavits to elicit confessions from suspected criminals. The Sun reached out to Senior Deputy District Attorney Ann Bremerton, although she declined to comment for the story. In the most recent incident involving the fake press release, Martin said his department had his department issue it, hoping the news media would report it as fact, and they did. However, he added... It is not a common practice. This is an incredible exception to what we normally do, Martin said, but we thought it was the best form of protection. It apparently worked. Martin said the two targeted individuals were successfully relocated. According to court documents, the suspects believe their targets had been arrested after seeing the news reports along with pictures of the John Doe's on TV. Following the release of the fake news and the subsequent news reports, Martin said detectives were able to acquire additional information from telephone surveillance, which ultimately led to the arrests of the suspects. Martin declined to provide any further detail about the John Doe's or the deliberate process that led to the SMPD's decision 
to issue the press release. Cal Poly Professor Loving said that as official sources of information, both police and the news media have an obligation to correct fake news as soon as possible. He said he finds no difference between what the SMPD did and the fake news used in the presidential election, except that police risk further eroding the fragile trust between them and the public. How do we know what to tell the public that they can trust, Loving told The Sun. The good thing is that there was not collusion on the part of the media with the police. And we're back to why are the media not fact-checking everything they're reporting properly? Well, why would you do that if you didn't have to, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody else have thoughts about that? <sighs> Jeremy, Facts? what do you think of that? Facts? What is that? I mean, it's... I understand why they did what they did, but that is ridiculous. Yeah. That is ridiculous. Oh, and the last bit where at least, you know, it was not collusion between the media and the police. Huh. But it that wasn't? happens as well. Yeah, they, it does. They do, the police, worldwide, it, occasionally, it's not a regular thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it would have been legislated about. Right. Sometimes plant fake stories to draw no. out suspects. No, that can't be true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can trust the press. Operation Mockingbird. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Speaking of birds, does anybody else keep hearing birds? I do. Yeah. It's it's kind of cute. It, uh, cat's it going is. nuts. I'm sorry. <laughs> so is that from you? It's, from. it's not coming from me because I'm inside a nicely sealed, air conditioned building. So if I well, had it's birds, dark my where I am, so it's unlikely it'd be me. Yeah. yeah no, I just I thought somebody might have had a ringtone. <laughs> Mm-mm. Now my phone's the other side of the room and the microphone's pointing in the opposite direction from it. My phone's off. <laughs> yeah, you know, mine's not even in the same room. You know, if if I could... Uh, actually, um, what I liked with this new Samsung phone was that I was able to encrypt it very easily. Yeah. That yeah. was nice for me. I like that. Went in the menu and push a button. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I've still got to encrypt mine. Well, you know... It, no, I really need to because mine has confidential work documents on it. So, yeah, don't tell. And you're with, <laughs> and you're within that 100 mile magical border. Yeah, you might want to do that. Yeah, well, mine are just really just industry related things, pipelines. Yes, I mean, yeah, there is some security there, but it's mostly proposals and uh, bids for jobs that the company's made. So, yeah. Well, <clears throat> sorry, I don't have anything that ex- exciting on my phone. Uh, okay. So this was interesting to me too, because um, I'm a glutton for punishment. Whistleblower says UK police worked with hackers to access activists' email accounts. From the Redefining Terrorism, One Abuse at a Time Department. Here come even more revelations of surveillance abuse by UK law enforcement. To date, various law enforcement agencies have been exposed as participating in very broad readings of very broadly written anti-terrorism laws to spy on journalists and activists. 
This latest abuse detailed by The Guardian concerns the surveillance of activists by UK law enforcement on behalf of a foreign government. The police watchdog is investigating allegations that a secretive Scotland Yard unit used hackers to illegally access the private emails of hundreds of political campaigners and journalists. The allegations were made by an anonymous individual who says the unit worked with Italian police, who in turn used hackers to illegally obtain the passwords of the email accounts of the campaigners and some reporters and press photographers. Hacked passwords were passed to the Metropolitan Police Unit, according to the writer of the letter, which then regularly checked the emails of the campaigners and the media to gather information. The letter to Jones listed the passwords of environmental campaigners, four of whom were from Greenpeace. Several confirmed they matched the ones that they had used to open their emails. This is more of the same for any UK agencies with access to surveillance tools and easy, easily abusable laws. Their complainants are adding to the pile sitting in front of the Independent Police Complaints Commission. Not that the commission will ever get to the bottoms of this, as it's finding its oversight being thwarted by the agencies it's assigned to oversee. Last month, the IPCC said it had uncovered evidence suggesting the documents had been destroyed, despite specific instructions that files should be preserved to be examined by a judge-led public inquiry into the undercover policing of political groups. The letter claimed that the shredding has been happening for some time and for a far greater scale than the IPCC seems to be aware of. The author added that the main reason for destroying these documents is that they reveal that police officers were engaged in illegal activities to obtain illegal intelligence on protest groups. It's unclear whether the Italian police who used hackers to obtain account passwords were looking for or why they turned it over to Scotland Yard for assistance. Those who accounts were hacked were accessed were far from dangerous individuals. Although the activists may be vehemently opposed to the UK government policies and the actions of several major corporations, the worst of those confirmed to be surveilled did 80 hours hard time community service stemming from an incident where unwanted solar panels were forcibly installed on a deputy prime minister's house. Presumably, the valuable info snagged from the hacked accounts gave police on both sides heads up on planned demonstrations as well as other non-protest-related conversations the activists might have had. Considering what flows into the average email account, police might have gained access to financial transactions, medical information, and conversations between activists and those with zero interest in making the world a substantially better place. Fortunately, the documentation backing up the hacking accusations is still in the hands of repentant hackers rather than headed for the Scotland Yard shredder. Yeah, see, uh, m maybe yeah, uh, that judge from earlier can ask Scotland Yard, uh, can can you give us the name of that hacker and we've got these hard drives <laughs> we want them to look at. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, obviously just... police uh, do this sort of thing uh, yeah. and then lie about it because it's illegal. Um, yep. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, it's oh. yeah, it's been going on a while. It has been reported before, uh, <laughs> but it, yeah, again, it's not a regular occurrence. It still shouldn't <laughs> be happening, but yeah. yeah. I mean, it happens. It's an obvious fact of life. It happens with everybody, but 
it, it still, it still makes me feel, I don't know. It just makes me feel yucky. I, I don't like it. I, I mean, it. this is, this is the worst one probably yet because yeah, there were protesters. Huh. Any law, it was all mostly public order offenses. So they've gone to this effort to get information, use hackers to get this information. And mm -hmm. yeah, what, what, the people got prosecuted and got community service. I mean, it's not even jail time. I mean, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It, I just don't understand it. I mean, I don't know. You have to have activists, I think. So, yeah. So, does anybody feel strongly about this one? Um, and I'm asking because, I mean, I think it's going to be really hard to explain it without all the photos in the story. Oh, the wiki peaks. Yeah. Uh, wiki leaks. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, I don't know that I feel strongly about it. Let's just say wiki leaks done fucked up again. Yeah. Again. <laughs> again. Again. And again. again. Yes. They kind of keep doing that. Um, how's this one? Uh, critical Cisco flaw found buried in Vault 7 documents. I mean, oh yeah, that, I think that, 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 that one's entertaining for me for yeah. various reasons. Yeah. Hundreds of models of Cisco switches are vulnerable to a remote code execution bug in the company's iOS software that can be exploited with a simple Telnet command. The vulnerability was uncovered by company researchers in the CIA hacking, dump, hacking tool dump known as Vault 7. The bug is a critical one, and an attacker who is able to exploit it will be able to get complete control of a target device. The flaw lies in cluster management protocol that's used in iOS, and Cisco says it's caused by incorrect processing of CMP telnet options, as well as accepting and processing these commands from any telnet connection. An attacker could exploit this vulnerability by sending a malformed CMP-specific telnet options while establishing a telnet session with an affected Cisco device configured to accept telnet connections. An exploit could allow an attacker to execute arbitrary code and obtain full control of the device or cause a reload of the attack device, the Cisco advisory said. CMP-specific telnet options are processed by default, even if no cluster recognition commands are present on the device configuration. The vulnerability can be exploited during telnet session negotiation over either IPv4 or IPv6. The vulnerability can only be exploited through telnet session established to the device. Sending the malformed options on telnet sessions through the device will not trigger the vulnerability. Cisco said, while there's no patch available yet, disabling telnet will eliminate the exploit vector. The vulnerability affects many Cisco Catalyst switches, but also some industrial Ethernet switches and others. The company recommends that customers disable Telnet and enable SSH on affected switches. In its advisory, Cisco said the vulnerability was identified during the analysis of documents related to the Vault 7 disclosure. The documents known at Vault 7 were published two weeks ago and included thousands of pages of information related to tools and techniques used by the CIA for offensive hacking operations. 
The release includes a lot of information on attack techniques and targeted devices and software and technology vendors whose products are detailed in the documents have been working back to determine whether there are still vulnerabilities in their products. Few vendors have said anything publicly about the documents, although Apple released a statement shortly after the Vault 7 dump saying most of the bugs in its products mentioned in the documents had already been patched. Cisco did not say in its advisory when it would issue a patch for the CMP vulnerability. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I, I happen to, you know, know quite a few Cisco certified engineers. Uh, right. And, you know, uh, I don't think any of them leave Telnet activated on switches. <laughs> <and> <laughs> <laughs> um, Telnet's been known to be, Telnet itself has been known to be insecure for ages. So yeah, the, the fact that they've brought out a story going on, Cisco's kind of not saying when the vulnerability will be patched. It's because they've kind of known about the vulnerability for a right. long, long time. It's right, just but it's customers now it's public. that keep telling them, oh, yeah. Telnet, Telnet, people using older systems. Uh, right. But yeah, the actual engineers usually turn it off when they're installing mm -hmm. the damn equipment. Because um, <laughs> you don't need... The way modern systems work, you don't need Telnet. Mm-hmm. So, no. yeah. But well, it come, all the devices come with Telnet because tradition, you know, basically. Because, mm. uh, yeah, mm. I mean, your, your home routers and switches, a lot of them will have Telnet on them. Right. Your Your desktop computer has Telnet options. Mm-hmm. But Which I, you know, the only people who actually use them are hackers, as far as I'm aware. Uh, <laughs> Telling it's turned off on my stuff. Mine too. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's and, for remote access of your device, which yeah. you don't need to have turned on unless mm -mm. you're actually trying to repair it remotely. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's the only time it needs to be turned on. Do the I fix, agree. turn it back off again. Mm -hmm. And that's what yep. Cisco engineers tend to do, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that would make sense. Um, so, I found this one interesting. Um, and I think this is from Salon. Uh, bypassing encryption, lawful hacking is the next frontier of law enforcement technology. The discussion about how law enforcement or government intelligence agencies might rapidly decode information someone else wants to keep secret is or should be shifting. One commonly proposed approach in introducing what is called a backdoor to the encryption algorithm itself is now widely recognized as too risky to be worth pursuing any further, unless you're James Comrie, who thinks that you have no right to privacy and he should be able to look into your devices no matter what you think. Uh, the scholarly and research community, the technology industry, and Congress appear to be in agreement that weakening the encryption that in part enables information security, even if done in the name of public safety or national security, is a bad idea. Backdoors could be catastrophic, jeopardizing the security of billions of devices and critical communications. What comes next? Surely police and spy agencies will still want or even need information stored by criminals in encrypted forms. Without a backdoor, how might they get access to data that may help them solve or even prevent a crime? 
The future of law enforcement and intelligence gathering efforts involving digital information is an emerging field that I and others who are exploring it sometimes call lawful hacking. Night, Jeremy. Um, rather, than rather than employing a skeleton key that grants media access to encrypted information, government agents will have to find other technical ways, often involving malicious code and other legal frameworks. Decades of history. In the mid-1990s, the Clinton administration advanced a proposal called the Clipper Chip. The chip, which was ultimately doomed by its technical shortcomings, was an attempt to assure government access to encrypted communications. After the chip's introduction and failure, a group of cryptographers formally studied the various mechanisms that might allow a trusted third party, in this case the government, to read encrypted data in emergencies. They concluded that each approach had significant security risks. Overall, the cryptographer's view was that introducing this new capability into an encryption system made an already complicated process even more complex. The increased complexity made it more likely that there would be unintentional vulnerabilities hidden in the encryption protocol that malicious hackers could find, gaining access to the trusted third party's emergency system or otherwise breaking the code. The hackers could then read secret messages for their own purposes, a huge risk. When the clipper chip project died, and when the cryptographer's major study came out, the idea of exceptional access for governments seemed to die as well. An environment in which cybersecurity was an increasing priority and in which encryption was a partial defense against many data breaches and hackers, it seemed unwise to do anything that might weaken cryptography standards. Snowden reveals more. While the clipper chip effort to use public processes to create weaknesses in the cybersecurity had failed, the National Security Agency had, in secret, worked to undermine certain popular encryption algorithms. In addition to direct attempts to break encryption with mathematical me methods, an NSA project codenamed Bullrun included efforts to influence or control international cryptography standards and even to collaborate with private companies to ensure the NSA could decode their encryption. This came to light when former NSA contractor Edward Snowden revealed a massive trove of files about U.S. government spying in 2013 and reignited the debate about what abilities and powers the government should have to read encrypted material. Once again, a group of the world's leading cryptographers studied the issue and in 2015 came to the same conclusion. The risk of backdooring encryption to enable government access was too high. Doing so would weaken the overall security too much to make up for any brief improvements in public safety or national security. The FBI pushes back. Then came the San Bernardino attack. On December 2nd, 2015, Razwan Farouk and his wife, Jasheen Malik, opened fire at a social services center in San Bernardino, California. Inspired but not directed by foreign terrorist groups, they killed 14 people and wounded 22 during their violent rampage. Before the attack, Farouk had physically smashed up two personal cell phones, rendering their data unrecoverable. He left untouched his work phone, an iPhone 5C issued by San Bernardino County. Investigators found the phone, but the FBI was unable to examine its data due to Apple encryption and security mechanisms on the device. To get around this, the United States government used a law from the earliest days of the Republic, the 1789 All Rights Act to try and compel Apple to write software that would break the encryption and grant the FBI access. Apple refused, saying that doing so would weaken the security of every iPhone on the market, and a court showdown began. The conflict in a nutshell. The Apple FBI case nicely encompasses much of the debate around encryption, a horrible incident that everyone wants investigated, 
the government stated need for access to aid the investigation, strong encryption that prevents access, and a company unwilling to risk the broader security of its products by attacking its own software. And yet, even when the stakes were as high as the government said they were in the San Bernardino case, encryption would remain secure. Faced with Apple's refusal to comply and criticism from the technology and privacy industries, the FBI found another way. The Bureau hired an outside firm that was able to exploit a vulnerability in the iPhone's software to gain access. It wasn't the first time the Bureau had done such a thing. As all this unfolded and in the face of a wide range and significant opposition, a bill to mandate backdoors was introduced and failed in the United States Congress. Encryption backdoors remain largely viewed as weakening everyone's protection all the time for the sake of some people's protections on rare occasions. As a result, the workarounds like the FBI found are likely to be the most common approach going forward. Indeed, in recent years, law enforcement agencies have greatly expanded their hacking capabilities. A look to the future. The details matter, though, and how this fledgling field develops remain to be seen. Technologists and lawyers studying the issue have identified several key questions, but not answers. These include, what kind of vulnerabilities can law enforcement use to gain access technologically, legally, and ethically? Should they report those vulnerabilities to the software vendor for fixing, even if that means it is less likely that either the police or hackers will be able to use the weaknesses in the future? What do they need to tell a judge in order to gain permission to hack a device? Can they hack devices outside their jurisdiction? And what happens if they hack computers in their own countries? Do they need to tell a defendant at trial how they hacked his or her device? While some details depend on certain answers to these legal and technical questions, a lawful hacking approach offers a solution that appears to gain greater favor with experts than encryption backdoors. A group of scholars proposed some ways we should begin thinking about how law enforcement should hack. Agencies are already doing it, so it's time to turn the now-ended debate about encryption backdoors and engage in this new direction instead. Not going to have a choice, really. Do you know, I had to kind of laugh at, at the, a look to the future bit, where it's fledgling field develops. Yeah, like fledgling. fledgling. I know, that's funny. That is funny. Have they forgotten about GCHQ? The the go-to hacker um, for even the US government? <laughs> As Snowden revealed. You know, it's like, we need to get this guy hacked. GCHQ? Yeah. yeah, all right then. Hmm. Here's the data you wanted. Yeah, it's only I been mean, a couple of days. Yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't know how it, it just happened to fall into our lap. You asked for it and just magically appeared. It must have been the magic encryption, decryption elves that did well, it. Well, yeah, I mean, most people did it. seem to forget or have fallen for the the nice history of computing. Although more got revealed once things got released to the public domain. Yeah. But yeah, UK well ahead of everybody else when it came to computers. Right. We had the world's first, after all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although we didn't we didn't actually admit to it until was it <laughs> nineteen ninety three or something? Uh, right. When well, Turing's it... work got released. But yeah. yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. So this kind of terrified me, um, and 
I'm I'm a big believer in no government. We all we all know where I am uh, as far as it goes with government. But I got to tell you, I'm not in love with this. Acting Federal Trade Commission head, Internet of Things should self-regulate. Does that sound like a good idea to you? No. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't to me either. Okay. The acting head of the U.S. Trade Commission, FTC, under Donald Trump, said that the agency is not primarily a regulator in conversation with The Guardian on Monday. Maureen Olhausen, the commission's sole Republican and its acting chair under Trump, said the FTC was primarily a law enforcement agency and called for a wait-and-see approach to enforcement during discussion at a conference of cybersecurity professionals on Monday at the NASDAQ. She also... Stop it. She also defended the use of big data to offer consumers different prices for the same goods and said she wanted manufacturers of internet-connected household devices to decide best practices among themselves. The event was held by the National Cybersecurity Alliance and NASDAQ. Olhausen defended the airline and hotel industry practice of altering prices for some services based on consumer data in conversation with The Guardian, saying that such practices spurred competition. Information can be used to target some consumers with a higher price, but the same information can be used to target consumers with a better deal, Olhausen said. She recommended a voluntarily, voluntary set of standards suggested by an industry trade organization called the Broadband Internet Technology Advisory Group, BITTAG. Many technologists have called for industry standardization in the Internet of Things devices in the wake of a hack on Internet backbone provider DYN late in 2016, which was widely attributed to a single Chinese manufacturer of low-security webcams. Asked whether there should be mandatory regulations rather than suggestions from industry groups, Alhausen said, we haven't taken a position. We're saying not let's speculate about harm five years out. But is there something happening that harms consumers right now, or is it likely to cause harm to consumers? Olhausen told the audience at the conference. If there is potential harm to consumers in a new technology, the FTC should not act until that harm manifests, she said. We don't know if that risk will materialize. It may well materialize, but a solution may materialize at the same time. Hmm. While it is true that the FTC has not passed regulations of its own since the contract lens rule in 2004, it has often proposed that Congress pass legislation that would affect domestic trade. In 1975, Congress gave the FTC authority to adopt industry-wide trade regulation rules. Other commissioners have referred to themselves as regulators. We do have a few regulations, and we're looking to see if any need to be streamlined, she said, with respect to the Trump administration's one-in, two-out rule. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. It's just, it's just crazy. I mean, but, uh, we're not going to do anything unless something happens. Something happens. Uh, like, because nothing's happened. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that, oh, we're not really a regulator. Yes, you are. Mm -hmm. Federal Trade Commission. I believe it could be related to the title of the organization. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you're it's not supposed screwed. to be letting people sell products that can be risky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whether I mean, it's a physical risk or a data risk or it's yeah. a risk, idiots. Yeah. I mean, it's not just me. And we've seen how many times the Internet of Things has been hacked. We've seen oh, yeah. how it's been compromised. We've seen people's fridges leaking their Gmail calendar accounts. Um, 
which, you know, in turn led to people's Gmail email accounts being hacked all over the damn internet. I mean, to me, that's kind of scary. Yeah. I mean, not, not to apparently this Republican, though. I mean, shouldn't something be done about the fact that your toaster can spew any information about you to anybody over unencrypted lines on the internet? I mean, you know, shouldn't at least that be changed? Shouldn't the information that chipsets can send back to the manufacturer, shouldn't that at least be encrypted, even with low-level encryption? Something. Just something to protect people. Just another step. I mean, I'm not talking about anything big, but I mean, you would think that would be something they would get behind. Sorry, I I now have something else running about in my head. It's a light in the mood. Okay. Does anyone want some toast? (laughs) <laughs> toasty toaster yes but you know what i'm saying i mean yeah. we we know dyson dyson's vacuums can email dyson and say right this user's going to need new whatever yeah whether it's a new the drive what? belt's about to fail hell yeah 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 i mean that cars seems... do it as well i mean yeah. yeah that just seems strange to me I mean, don't get me wrong, but shouldn't they inform you first instead of just emailing the manufacturer? I mean, it just seems like there's little things that they could be doing to make us all a whole lot safer. And yeah. and it wouldn't really require much. Um, but, you know, I just, I don't get it. How is this helpful? It just doesn't seem like it's helpful at all. Well, in, in this case, it's basically the FTC going, we're going to ignore problems until they're pushed right in our face. <laughs> Pretty much. I wish you could see me right now. I'm sitting here in, in my Batman t-shirt and my cat is sitting on my lap. I feel like a James Bond villain. It, does your chair have a high back and big arms? No, my oh, well, chair you're not, has... Then, you see? My chair has a mesh back, and my cat looks like a trash panda. So See, I'm, not I'm in quite, the world. I'm not a, quite a I've, Bond I've villain. I've got a world domination seat, but I don't have a cat. <laughs> I've got the high back chair with the arms, and, the, <laughs> and and I can basically lie down in my chair, even though it's a computer chair. But yeah, not mine. My 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 kitty came out of the came out of the other room and was just standing here yelling at me. I'm like, get up here! I'm still on the air. You can't yell. <laughs> <laughs> so he's up here purring up a storm um i just i'm just blown away by that stuff oh it's fine it's fine to let that stuff just float around on the interwebs there of course don't forget congress i don't know did, did uh, you hear them trying to explain the internet a few years ago yeah. they were saying it's a series of tubes i'm like what yeah, I think I think they had watched the episode of the IT Crowd, where, where they 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 con Jen into thinking the internet's this little box with a light on top. If people it's haven't watched that, it's funny. It's ridiculous, but I mean the fact that our Congress critters are so smart that they actually believed it is frightening as hell. I mean, you got to be a dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's well. That's I I, I keep saying it. It's like as soon as soon as you apply or put yourself forward for election, 
you must one of the one of the things you must do as well as putting in the paperwork must be you get lobotomized because <laughs> uh, yeah some of the things that they come out with you're like what what and it's not just your politicians the ones over here aren't much better uh, <laughs> yeah no they're they're all kind of they're all kind of um I don't want to say they're window lickers because that's just mean. But they are they, disconnected they, with the reality of the rest of us, would be the polite description, I think. Yeah, I think they all kind of seem to they seem to turn into just um morons for yeah. lack of a better term. Yeah. That's what happens, I think. And that's the easiest way to describe it. But uh, yeah, so the FTC is perfectly fine with allowing your toaster and washing machine to leak your private information all over the internet. That's not really a problem. I also want to emphasize that the house is okay with the person who is your internet provider sticking zombie cookies on your machine and then selling the information about you to whoever. Congress just the House was okay with that. It's still got to go through the full Senate, and we're hoping the Senate will block it because that is kind of a violation of your privacy, and in fact, a massive violation of your privacy. So that's probably something to be aware of. Just a bit. I didn't talk. I didn't talk about it earlier. I mean, I'm just I'm amazed that Congress is okay with that, but you know. They're okay with, you know, your toaster telling the world, you know, this is the, the usual Gmail they'll, they'll calendar. Be, they'll be okay with it until it happens to one of them. To them. Then suddenly it'll be a big, big problem. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Diane Feinstein. Oh, you don't need to have privacy. And then I opened my window and there was a drone. <laughs> I think everybody can remember that happening. Yeah. Which uh, I'm not sure that that was funny or scary or what, but uh, still not really cool. I don't know. <sighs> I is that seems like it's about it for tonight, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't think really. Yeah. I don't really we've covered everything, really. I think so too. So I guess we'll say good night, farewell, Avita Zane. Um, so music and Muppets and advert. Huh. Okay. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Thanks for listening, you guys. We'll be back next Friday. Good night.